So happy to be here with you in Queens. Uh, what a gift and the role you played in my life for the last few years. I can't really even put it into words. So you are the former pastor of New Life Fellowship, church planner here from several decades ago in 1987. And you have transitioned and now head up Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is, I guess, technically a nonprofit, right? Mm -hmm. But still based out of this church. And you do work around the world around discipleship and how does it tie into emotional health and slow down spirituality. And uh, we're in this series back home around unhurrying to a rule of life and thinking a lot about hurry and busyness and speed and digital addiction and life in a city and how, how does any of that or all of it kind of curtail and mitigate against the life that Jesus has for us and our spiritual formation in the image of Jesus. And I have a present for you. I don't know if you, are you a coffee guy at all? Some more so, tea, a little bit. Okay. So this is hard coffee. It's roasted a few days ago from Portland. I think it's the best coffee in the world. Really? Or in the top three, four in there. It's phenomenal. Ethiopia so. Worker Socorro. Mm-hmm. It's you. good stuff. Appreciate it. Well, it's great to be here with you, and thank you so much for hosting us in your space. And uh, I think I said this earlier, but we are teaching this fall around unhurrying to a rule of life and the idea of hurry and its effect on emotional health and spiritual life, which you're a little bit of a guru on, and a rule of life and how do we schedule and structure our life around abiding and some kind of awareness and connection to the Spirit of God. So that's kind of on our docket for the fall, and I happened to be in town doing some stuff in New York, and I thought, man, if I could just sit down with you, push record, ask you some questions, and mostly just get you to be you. Maybe for people that are following along that are new to you or just know little bits and pieces of your story, let's start just with autobiography. Okay. You are well known for many things, the main one of which is emotionally healthy spirituality, um, both the ministry and the concept. But let's start way back, like give us the, the gist. So you're from kind of Manhattan area, mm -hmm. from Jersey, but you've been here, you church planted here in Queens, how long ago? 1987. 1987. So Wow, let's think. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it's a long, <laughs> long enough. I was a lead pastor twenty. Tricky years. to do your math, yeah, the math yeah, in yeah. your mind. Yeah. And then a few years ago, you um, kind of stepped down yep. from leading the church and passed it on to Rich. He's an amazing kind of next step after you. But you're still here, still in the church, yep. and just leading emotionally healthy spirituality. Yep. But give us uh, like a little bit of your backstory to how did you come into what you now call emotionally healthy spirituality. I'm sure you didn't like start with a label. You just, Absolutely I don't know what you not. called it or called it nothing at you the know, beginning. You know, this summer I read the book Educated mm -hmm. by... Uh, yeah, about the gal that grew up in Mormonism. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's I, on my list. I have yeah. not read it yet. But anyway, I related to it. I said, you know, it's like, you know, because I came from a family, Italian-American family. Right. Uh, my parents are from Brooklyn originally. Uh, very Italian-American family. And, uh, but came to Christ in college at 19. Mm-hmm. And through university, it was a parachurch. It was it was a nothing. Then we became into varsity. So early yeah. on, we got you know I was a Roman Catholic kid who left the church at twelve. So I was really an agnostic. Didn't know anything about Old Testament versus New Testament. I was just a partying animal. This was the you know late seventies, and mm -hmm. uh, but it was kind of the very tail end of the Jesus movement. Yeah. And Where is this in the area? Where did you go? In to New school? Jersey, New a place Jersey. called Glassboro State. That's now Rowan University. Got it. And um, it was my sophomore year, and 
you know, I went to a Christian concert with some long-haired people from California, and probably it was the right, it was the right thing. To... Back when the only people with long hair were from California. <laughs> and they just were, you know, grooving and giving their testimonies, and I walked in, seriously, I walked into church as an agnostic, and I came out, you know, praising Jesus. It was that kind of conversion, wow. and... You know, I'm actually convinced it was a deliverance as well because something came out of me. And my family had a big history in psychics, gypsies, wow. uh, that whole thing which comes out of, out of Naples, Italy. And it was all mixed in with Catholicism growing up. And hmm. so um, it, was, it, was a, it was a deliverance. It was a light darkness, you know. So I was, wow. you know... Before moment. and after kind yeah, of it was. I, I walked out of that church, you know, singing on fire, reading hours a day of scripture, and for wow. within nine months I was president of our Christian fellowship. Now understand, I, um, you know, I had some leadership gifts that were starting to emerge, and I was leading a group of 50, 60 people. I was a Christian nine months myself. So I'm, I'm now in a, you know, I'm listening to Christian radio, and I'm teaching whatever I'm hearing, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, so it's all brand new, totally but you're new immediately. And, and in Jerry, my Jerry also came to Christ around the same time. So it's about. Were you guys dating already? No, nope, nope, just friends. We were friends eight years before we fell in love and got married. Got actually. It. So, but there was a little revival that when ha happened on our campus. And um, what were you like? Like, tell me before you go on. Like, what were? I mean, I just know the sixty-something you, or however yeah, old, yeah. You, old you 63. are. Sixty-three. Sixty-three. And, you know, this is after decades of life with Jesus mm -hmm. and spiritual formation and emotional health and slow down spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, give me a picture of yourself at whatever you were, 19, 20 years old. Well, I'll give you a picture of high school. I was high every day <laughs> and played high school basketball. Okay. So I, I was a, I can see you as a basketball player. I was player. a basketball player. So I loved basketball and uh, played varsity. And so that, but I was high every day. So... Let's put it this way. When we took our, our test to go into high school, and I went to the I went to the Catholic high school, which basically was for rejects, because uh, it was at a good sports program. And so my friends and I, when we applied for the high school, just filled up the test to make sure we got in all the dumb class that we just multiple choice. And we ended up both in the smart. I ended up in the smart class. And he ended up in the dumb class, the lowest class of the dumb class, the lowest class. And it says, you know, God just had His hand on me, just to even when I was I was such a mess. My family, I came out of an abusive situation. Mom had mental illness, wow. uh, so she really wasn't able to raise us. We had four kids. I'm the youngest. And my father wow. traveled a lot, so he was not around. Uh, just your older provider. siblings kind of raised you, or what was that like? No, because we were more just we, on we, your we, own. We, 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 we were kind of together, but it was, it was, a, it was, it was very uh, painful. Yeah. You know, Italian-American families are very into being tight. Yeah. But inside, it can be a total wreck. So it's kind of like the mafia thing, the, the family. So it's not like kind of maybe more my background where you just break apart and ignore each other. You stay together, but it's And you're loyal to the but death. It's, but it's dysfunctional. Absolutely. Toxic. So, so my father and mother are married, but he's traveling all week. Um, and he just believed in physical beatings every weekend because that was the Italian way. And my mother just was mentally ill. I mean, she was in and out of hospitals her whole life. So we kind of raised ourselves. So it was a very, I mean, it was kind of like, we got to get out of this place. Are they still alive? No. No, they're both dead. Okay. And uh, my, actually, my father came to Christ. Both my parents did, you know, after we did. And uh, so it was interesting, you know, he was very repentant for what he did after he came to Christ. But he didn't yeah. know, you know. So we, were, we had a good relationship the last 20 years of his life, 25 years. Mm. Wow. But the damage was done in our Absolutely early years. Absolutely, to your soul, so yeah. I came, I came into adulthood. When I went to college, it was an escape. Yeah. And um, so when I came to Christ, it was like, New family of Jesus. This is like wonderful. It's my first time interacting with people of different races, cultures, 
Protestants, not Italians. It was like a shock. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I went headlong saying, I don't want to think about the past. The, the bad theology worked well with me, which is I'm a new creation. The old yes. is gone. And so even so our that kind of evangelical perfect. Jesus movement, don't think about the past, just focus on it's Jesus, for move me. forward, yeah, it was perfect. enabling you to not actually deal with all your stuff. That's exactly right. You're and no by one, perfect, you mean it enabled like this stronghold to stay in your soul. Absolutely. So I, I was changing superficially. I was changing in a very, getting a lot of knowledge, learning a lot of skills, like about the world, about missions, about racism, about scripture, uh, studying hours a day. I mean, I was, you know, Jerry liked to say we were poster children uh, evangelicals. Yeah. But. Um, and this is what year? This is like 80-ish? Yep. We were, I go on into varsity staff. Um, I was an open-air evangelist traveling on no campuses way. around New York, New, New Jersey. And I really had a passion for sharing Christ because I, this was the greatest news on the planet. And I yeah. was, so I, you know, we used to. It's genuine. It's real. Like oh, totally. I, I would stand you. up on a university campus and just start preaching. I, you know, I was, and I just such a fire and it was authentic. It wasn't like anybody forcing me. Mm -hmm. um, but then I got, I realized people need community. So I ended up going to seminary. Okay. Uh, not that I saw myself. Where was a, that? Gordon. I went to Princeton for a year and then Gordon, wow. and Gordon Conwell for okay. two. Because Jerry also was on into varsity staff. We both were on staff at Rutgers University. And uh, so when we first got married, I did my first year at Princeton, then two years at Gordon-Conwell. So I was very fortunate to have a pretty broad you yeah. know, seminary education. And then actually, um, actually, I, I used to took four courses at Harvard while I was at Gordon-Conwell. I had Henry really? Nowen while I was there. He You're was kidding still, me. Was you had alive. Henry Nowen. He was still alive. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, we got to come He was teaching at the Divinity School. Yeah, it was really, it was really something. But... Um, so, but all this learning was divorced of any kind of interior introspection of yeah. uh, of the past, my history. And then when I got did you see anything like when you were with Nowen? I mean, because he was he was doing some of this work he decades was, ago. You know what? He a lot of people were doing talking about. Um, believe it or not, they were talking about twelve steps. Stuff yeah. and inner life, but no one knew. No one knew how to get at it. Yeah. So it was talked about. It was out there. But there was no pathway. No. I there mean, were Nowen's writings are wonderful, but they're a little kind of listen. I've news for you. There were, there were scandals from the day I came to Christ. Yeah. I mean, this is not a new thing of leaders falling and scandals. This has been going on forty plus years yeah. of my time in Christ. So this is nothing new, and I don't think it's going to change unless there's, a, unless there's a significant shift in how we do formation and leadership development. Yeah. Uh, because it's an, it's an inevitable consequence of the pressure of leadership over time. Yeah. And so um, because there were lots of public scandals and falls, people would talk about it. But I remember, and I would do whatever was out there, you know, there was 12-step stuff, and, which is all good. Um, but we didn't have a pathway to get at it. That was, yeah. and so again, it was still thin deep. And there probably was, were some theological hang in my experience, like, yes. like actually it begins way back before the pathways towards spiritual formation and soul care in the theology itself. Like there are some obstacles, I think, in evangelical theology to robust discipleship in general. Absolutely. And soul formation. Yes, and I would say that we were schooled in the heart of the best of evangelicals, and yeah. I'm grateful for it. I'm, I'm super grateful. I wouldn't be here if not for. You literally came to faith through it. And I, and I think about it. If I was in, the, 
you know, the or and I, you know, I'm very ecumenical, very committed to learning from the Orthodox Church as well as the Roman Catholic Church, and and the new kind of fourth wing of churches flowing out of Africa and Latin America. Yes. And there's a broad church out there, and I think it's important we learn from the. We need to be learning from the larger church, but I am, and it's easy to criticize our own tribe and just yeah. cut it to shreds. At the same time, I'm very aware that. Uh, two things. When God looks at the world, He sees the church, that he, and he, he loves the world, and He loves His church, the whole church. And our particular, you know, I know the, the warts of evangelicalism, because I've been yeah. there for a very, very long time. But I'm so grateful, because I would not be sitting here today if some long-haired guys from California yeah. did not get out there with their guitars. Uh, okay, so talk me into that, because, you know, speaking in, like, broad strokes, and criticism is never helpful in broad strokes, but... Every generation, you know, has its strengths and weaknesses yeah, yeah. at a stereotypical level, and um, I'm more aware of my own generation's issues than yours. But it feels like one of the things that's really rare for somebody your age in their 60s, boomer generation, came up through evangelicalism. This kind of ecumenical, wide view of the church. Mm -hmm. You read historically, yeah, you yeah. read Catholic, Protestant, African, evangelical and you kind of bring all these beautiful streams together into kind of a holism in your view of the soul, in your view yeah, of yeah. spirituality. And I love it. That's a little bit more common for a millennial mindset because yes. we grew up in the digital age, mm -hmm. urbanization, globalization. We're yep. used to having friends of other ethnic backgrounds, philosophical backgrounds. We're used to you know, um, spirituality and Christian faith being a minority position as so you adopt a little bit more of a minority mentality yeah, kind yeah. of thing at a religious level. But that seems really rare for your generation. Most of the guys I know who are your age are much more dogmatic. You would never yeah, yeah. quote a Catholic yeah, or yeah. recommend, you know, an ancient church father or mother. Yes. So what, I would love to hear how you got from the narrowness of evangelicalism, take that as a good thing or a bad yeah, yeah. thing, to the wide stream, you've not like gone progressive in your theology or anything, you're yeah. very orthodox, but to the wide stream of the kind of ecumenical, historic view of the church. Is that tied into the failure of evangelicalism to transform you at a soul level and your journey into EHS? Or I'd love to hear like more of the autobiography. How, how, how did you kind of move into the wider stream and how did yeah, you yeah. come into what you now call emotionally healthy spirituality? Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, it's a good, great question and it's a I don't think there's one answer for it. Yeah, I think it was sure. a very slow, nonlinear. Absolutely. Thing. So it, you know, I came to Christ, and um, and it's so funny. I remember first coming to Christ, and a guy handing me a uh, Hal Lindsey book. You know, yeah, oh <laughs> my gosh, Late Great Planet Earth. Planet yeah. Earth. And uh, most people listening probably have no idea what. <laughs> anyway, that there's is. a lot of there's a lot of nutty Christians around. Yeah, always have been. You know, yeah. and again, you read church history, you get perspective. It's always been the case. But I mean, I, I was in a church for a while where that book was practically scripture. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and the Pope's the Antichrist. Yeah. and all that, and everybody, the Antichrist kept changing. Yeah, every and, few I years, a, and, I, and I had a bad experience in the Catholic Church. I mean, I, I it was boring to me. I, I got nothing out of it. Left at twelve, thirteen. You know, and. So drunk priest, I was an altar boy, you know, in you know, fifth grade. And so I you know, saw some of the nuttiness and went to Catholic school for 12 years. But I, I didn't have a chip on my shoulder about it. I wasn't yeah. like, you know, this is... You it know. was more irrelevant maybe to you. Yeah, it wasn't like, I wasn't... But even when I came, first came to Christ and these, you know, and then I'd, I'd meet these folks who grew up in a Protestant church, just slam the Catholic church, and, and I'd be like, you know, the... That, you, you just can't generalize everybody like that. And I, and I knew some folks who had some real faith uh, within the Catholic Church, and I just, I, I just wasn't a, I just never bought it, I yeah. think. But I, I didn't go into it, and, 
And I study like but every that kind of dogmatic no, I anger against other traditions. No. That somehow that never got into you. I was a history major and an English major in college, so I always studied history, loved history, and um, even I think I, I loved Russian, you know, literature, for example. So I knew a lot about Dostoevsky and the Russian Orthodox mm -hmm. Church, just as a non-Christian, just from you know reading uh, his works, and and uh, so. When I came to Christ, I was always reading. I was a big reader. And into varsity, within evangelicalism, is a, is a, I would consider a pretty broad movement. Yeah. And uh, really encourages thinking and reading. So that was, that was good. Gordon Conwell, they spent most of their time, I think, slamming, you know, non-evangelical uh, doctrines and even very high reformed, you know, theology, yeah. five-point Calvinism. And, and I always rubbed me wrong. I mean, just the, 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 the battles within the Protestant church, within Arminians and I just, and, and Reformed folks just, just left me dead. And I, I just, mm. I just, so, so I'm reading that my, my roommate in seminary, um, when I graduated, I felt called to this pastor leadership thing. He went for her PhD at Princeton and his specialty was Syriac Christianity. And mm. so, you know, we were, we've been friends for 30 now, now probably 35 Explain years. Explain that for people listening, Syriac. Syriac, Syri from Syria, the whole mm -hmm. history of the church in Syria, which is, was his PhD work, and uh, he was a missiologist. So just being friends with him all these years, I'm reading everything he's reading, he's yes. sending me books. So his world as uh, a PhD student and a professor uh, and a church historian just was a great broadening experience for yeah. me. Gave and, you access to a whole But it wasn't changing point. me. But I, 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 you know, I was still very much an evangelical, but I was... So it, it kept you from some of the dogmatism or anti-other, but it wasn't doing, this wasn't doing... It wasn't changing my life. Stuff. But it yeah. was good. It was like, you know, it was yeah. good. Um, and then, but the real turning point was, again, I, I think once I... And I think I, I had some courses. At, uh, Princeton was good to be exposed to a lot of main lines. Mm -hmm. You know, to not, that was very helpful. Uh, I'd call the more liberal stream or progressive yeah. stream. It was just good to be in that world a bit. And... Um, but it was when I planted New Life Fellowship Church in 1987 and did everything I could that I knew of discipleship and formation. And I, and I really, I think I was very well versed in what was available at the time in yep. evangelical discipleship. And in our complex situation here in Queens, um, clearly fell short. And it was, it, the, the, the gap of effectiveness was so evident, I could not deny it. And then, of course, in my own life. So again, a part of... So, so you see it both in the church and in your own life. So it's not just like, I've been you know, transformed at the soul level and everything's humming, No. but I just need to figure out how to get it into my church. It's mm. a both and. I was... One of the gifts that God brought into my life when I came to Christ in college and we got exposed into varsity, we were part of the New York, New Jersey staff team, which was a multiracial staff team. Um, so, understand, my world was a white world until I came to Christ, and all of a sudden, I'm in now this multiracial world, and so it's understood that coming to Christ and bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers is all one. Yeah, like they were, together. it wasn't a theology, it was just like, this is what it means to be a Christian. So I remember, like... And this is, you know, decades before the kind of identity politics of today, and and yeah. even the wokeness, you know what I mean? I mean, not decades before these ideas, but before they hit mainstream culture. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm, in, I'm under black leadership. They're speaking, and I'm listening, and they're talking about racism, and structural racism, and I'm reading Malcolm X, and yeah. I'm like, you know, so 
it's for, and women struggling with leadership and then men being against it and then their struggle and all that the sexism dynamics and I was yeah. like but in the context of 1980s yes here in Queens absolutely you know. and so came on staff and so Intervarsity was, was, was a beginning uh, of really exposing me quickly to uh, these issues mm -hmm. which took me out I was not I was never a part of white suburban American Christianity got it never so when I came to Christ, I was in a church there on, on our campus. I was involved in an African-American church, then a bilingual church in the inner city. So I was always in these fringe churches. But do you feel like most of the discipleship stuff in evangelicalism has come out of majority white Absolutely. church contexts? Well, they have the power. They have the money. Uh, it's where it's, it's all about power and money. Hmm. So they, it dominates the publishing business and the large conferences. And, so, yeah, I mean, it just is what it is. And, and that and wasn't your context, it wasn't your No, overall. no, and so what happened when I started our church, I'm trying to figure out how, how to do a church, and now, again, I had this. So this is what year you planned, 1987? 1987, so I had a clear sense of, I would, when I was graduating seminary, like I was not gonna go to a white suburban area. I just, it, was, it wasn't even a possibility for me. That, um, you know, I, I wanted to plant a church among the working class poor, I wanted to do mm -hmm. multiracial, and um, so I had a clear sense from God to come back to New York City. Where I, was at, I was finishing up at Boston, at Gordon-Conwell area. And so my wife and I spent a year in Central America learning Spanish. Yeah. And then came back and planted here. And we spent a year actually basically volunteering at an all Spanish church here in Queens of probably 300 people, 95% illegal uh, folks without papers. Uh, so we really were immersed in this whole world of folks wow. at that time coming out of the Contra War, the El Salvador Civil War, wow. horrific stories. Um, and again, it wasn't political, it was just these are people, okay? Yeah. And, uh, and we were living But now. it's important to realize, you know, I remember the first time coming here, it gave me a whole new, like, vision of who you are and what your story is. Like, because my generation, we think of urban church planting is like where the cool church planters yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like you pick some cool city, yeah. and I'm not against that, I'm in a great city. <laughs> but you go to, you know, it's super expensive real estate, yeah, yeah, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. That is not your world. This no. is 1987, yes. it's a rough neighborhood, you know. And so even at the time when I was looking for like money, like how do you start a church? Nobody was interested in planting a church in Queens, but they were even then in the 80s interested in planting a church in Manhattan. Right. Because you could see how you could finance it, where it could go. And this it was is cool. not Manhattan. This was the other side of the track. So yeah. nobody was coming here. And actually, I tried to get my friends to move in with me um, when we started, Jerry and I, and nobody would come. And that's when I realized, oh, oh. I mean, that was a big learning moment when pretty much most of my seminary friends and historic Christian friends were going to suburban churches yeah. uh, with manses, with salaries, with some security, and we just went a whole nother route. But it wasn't even, a, well, I didn't think I was doing anything heroic to me, it was just like, I, had, I was like, this is what God had for us. I felt like there yeah. wasn't even a question or a choice about it. Yeah. So we moved in here, and Jerry comes from a beautiful town in New Jersey. Um, so, you know, it's quite a big shock. And we were broke, and it was a scratch church plant, and we were walking the streets doing evangelism. So I think the nature of this church plant, what's, what the, this has been the greatest gift God could have ever given me, because remember, when, we serve the, when you serve the poor, they're, they're blessing you, it's coming back. Like, so our theology and our experience contextualizing the gospel came out of this soil and the wrestling of, oh, I've got a Chinese person, you know, I got different skin colors of all Latin America, and African Americans here, a couple of white people here, and 
this isn't working. Like, this isn't, this community thing is not going to happen here. There's so much tension, and that's when it really hit me that evangelicalism, as we presently do discipleship at that time, doesn't change people deeply. That they're actually going to change their lives and live here, like raise my kids here, put my kids in school here. Oh, I'll do it for a year, and then I'm going to move out to the suburbs and my and my $200,000 you know, year job and house. and yeah. It's a nice internship. It's a great summer experience, but don't, this is not my life. I mean, yeah. so that's when I realized, oh, the great divide. I realized it was a great divide of, I'll call it white suburban American Christianity. And I realized it's such a small sliver of the larger church in the world mm-hmm. that it may have power and money, but it does not represent what God's doing in the larger world. Yeah. And so what was interesting is, so I was buried here in Queens, and I think the gift was I just stayed, you know, just sort of You're off the map. Totally off the map. You're not Pete Scazzaro. You're just nobody. In fact, when I, 1987, and uh, through, 2003 was when our first book came out. I I had not spoken anywhere. I had not traveled. I'll never forget a, a, uh, a publisher, because I knew this guy at Zondervan who knew our story and said, I'm going to publish this book. So I thought I'd been working on this emotionally church stuff and that whole story. And he goes, but I want you to know, Pete, he says, and he was very frank with me because he was a friend. He goes, Pete, you're, you're a nobody. And he said, you're a nobody. He goes, you're in Queens. Nobody knows you. Nobody knows your church. You're not on any major platform. But uh, we're going to publish it because I think it's important, but don't expect much. And so uh, when it first came out, The Emotionally Healthy Church. the honesty of He was that. very honest. And, and he said, yeah. he, he showed me a pyramid, you know, a triangle of a pyramid. He goes, you're on the bottom. So you're not going to get any money from us. Um, and any you know, publicity is going to go out to the bookstores and we'll see what happens. This is the way bookstores. And I didn't speak anywhere because no one knew who I was anyway. And uh, it sold two, 300 copies a month, I think, in the first six months. And I recall the guy said, what happened? So, to me, it was a revelation. So, yeah. I, it came out of a revelation that we can go into the story later. Yeah. Uh, and I said, I don't understand why no, why no one's buying it. He goes, he's, again, he said, Pete, remember, you're just, you're, you live, you're, nobody. you're living in Queens. You're not in Manhattan. You're yeah. in Queens. And then it just started spreading by word of mouth. Uh, but it's interesting how, and I was okay. I, I always, I, and I really do consider Queens and uh, to have been one of God's greatest protective gifts for me. And I, I don't think emotionally healthy discipleship would have emerged. Um, it couldn't have emerged outside the soil of our context. Yeah. Uh, because it was the crucible of, of the gifts of the African-American church through hundreds of the years here in the United States which we benefit from, the, the, the move of the Spirit of God in Latin America. Yeah. You know, we benefited from all this global movement of God that would just happen to be here in our context. So as we're working things out, I'm also not dealing with some of the battles that you're dealing with and other folks are dealing with in their suburban churches. Folks are going to their vacation homes in the summer. Nobody's going for vacation homes in the summer. They yeah. don't have vacation homes. So it was a gift because it just kept me grounded and rooted. Real life. And you weren't going to... You know, you weren't going to build a mega church because yeah. it's not possible. There's no such thing. And so that, that whole that whole idol of you know being somebody of you know having a campus or whatever. You know, and I remember going to a conference at Willow Creek. You know, and whatever. And I'd be like, this, this is just like I, I don't I don't even know who to talk to here. And uh, so we just you know plugged away, and, and God, but God met us. You know, He met us, and we hit. And us you're up. saying not just God met you, but actually that the soil, the multiracial. You know, poor. lower socioeconomic, yep. poor, like that was actually what created. It was like what gave birth. This milieu was what gave birth to emotionally healthy spirituality. Absolutely. I think it's interesting. You know, I had, um, 
I would imagine you get this, but your work around emotional healthy spirituality has had dramatic effect, not just on our church and our leadership team, but on me personally. So we, you know, hack all of your stuff and quote you all the time and, and steal from you all the time and advocate for so many <laughs> of his things. And as a general rule, our church is just, you know, 110% in and so grateful for you, for your work and your team. But there's always that you know, strong vocal minority that is actually a little bit hostile to the ideas of emotional health, or at least yeah. several of them. And there's like this inner kind of defense mechanism, you know? And I was in an interesting, not hostile, but interesting chat with somebody recently, and it was kind of that knee-jerk, you know, defensive. Because I think when you talk about emotionally healthy spirituality, many people know at a gut level, I'm not emotionally healthy, yeah. you know what I mean? And I'm not living into a lot of this stuff. And it would require a dramatic change, at least at some level of my life, my rule of mm -hmm. life, all of that kind of stuff, my value, my theology even. And so um, this wonderful person that I love and respect, but a little bit of that gut reaction. And this person said, well, you know, emotionally healthy spirituality is only for people of privilege. And this was a very privileged person that said it to me. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Emotionally healthy spirituality is only for people of privilege. Yeah. And it was kind of like, well, people in real day-to-day -day life like don't have time for all this kind of stuff and can't do this yeah. kind of stuff. And then coming here, it was so fascinating. Like nobody would ever use <laughs> the, the word privilege about yeah. your neighborhood. You know, and I don't mean that as a pejorative yeah. at all, but like this is not, this is the antithesis of that. Yes. And this is the soil it came out of, not people going away to summer as a verb yeah. in the Hamptons and do yeah. their genogram on the yeah, beach yeah. and get a spiritual director for $100 yeah. an hour or what. This is not that world. Yeah. This is working class, immigrant community, on the streets, yeah. you know, just trying to make it work in Queens, New York, and that's the soil. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to hear, one, what you think about that criticism. This is for people of privilege. And two, like, I want to hear, just tell us, that doesn't have to be the long version, but the 1987 I planted to 2003, yeah. the book came out, like that journey. Yeah. I don't have anything to say to that person who said that. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand it. He so, like, that's so, not true. That, 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 this, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, I don't get that one. Um, yeah, it seems so absurd. Anyway, the, um, but for me, very quickly, eight, 1987 to 92, 93, uh, we're planting multiple churches. At this point, we have probably four or five churches going on. Uh, the, the central church, I'm doing English and Spanish. Mm -hmm. We're one church in two languages. And the Spanish church has a split. Uh, about 200 people leave to go down the street, plant another church. And it's an unhealthy kind right, of I, I thing. Mean, it's a, yeah. it's all, you know, we're doing everything's the anointing, the power of God. You know, we're, at this point, I'm, I'm open to everything. I'm, I'm, yeah. That's a know. charismatic expression of Absolutely. church, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And at that time, uh, yeah, John Wimber was still alive, floating mm -hmm. around. It was signs and wonders, prophetic stuff everywhere. Um, but I found myself in a, my own crisis, just you know, emotionally. And I, was, I was an emotional person. Like I was angry. Yeah. I was angry. I was furious. I wanted to kill this guy, and uh, for splitting off and didn't know what to do with all this rage. Mm -hmm. you know, the probably goes all the way back to your family of origin. Oh yeah, yeah. As, as a you know, in your body. And understand, this is 1992. I haven't thought about my family of origin stuff. Yeah. Uh, 20, I, I, ever, ever. So I mean, I've never done Hey, I'm a new ever. creation. Why would I think about exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. And then, my, and then uh, I'm, I'm also exhausted and tired, just mm -hmm. being, you know, just going so hard. And, and the joy of Jesus, so much of that had dissipated. I mean, I still love Jesus and faithful, but it, it was hard. Yeah. It was heavy. And then Jerry was unhappy, my wife. The marriage, that's why marriage for us is so essential because 
the marriage was, uh, you know, just, Jerry and I, we loved each other, but it was difficult. It, and it just about ended your ministry. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she tell was, us the story about like she, she quit, quit her church, right? Yeah, Jerry was very. Jerry was, <laughs> uh, you know, she would drop little bombs like, "Hey, it'd be easier to be single than to be married to you because at least you'd have to take the kids on the weekends." That kind of thing. <laughs> oh those little bombs. But of course, I I never heard it. You yeah. Know, I, and I came from a very. Mo it's funny. I believe I'm, you can believe things. I believe in women leadership and all that. But I I was still macho. Yeah. Italian and uh, but I couldn't see it. So she was dropping hints, and then she, so 1994, with this church split, now I'm starting to crumble internally. She's still complaining. I start therapy, which, pff, I start feeling, which, wow. I shut down my feelings as a young kid, very young kid, in the midst of beatings, because if you feel and you're being abused, you'll die. You so you have to out. shut down. The problem is, I was now in my mid-30s, and I'm still shut down. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm still living out of that. And so now I'm, the pain is so great. I go to therapy. I'm starting to feel I can't help. And someone says, you're allowed to feel. And now I just explode oh, out. Because yeah. I think of you as, as a feeler, no. very in a healthy way, like you're in no, tune with no, that. I was, I was not I at that point. I prided myself on being a solid mm -hmm. guy that, that never got shaken. Like all you guys are up and down. I'm like, oh man, a week, man. Where's prayer and the word? You'd be steady, all right? Yeah, but I bet anger came out. Oh, rage, when it finally came out, rage came out, murder mm. came out. I was like, I didn't know it was in me. Yeah. And, uh, but it was all there going way back. Yeah. Uh, and so that, in 1994, I began this kind of inward journey, I call it, interior life. And again, I'm always reading monastics. I'm reading, and I, I, listened, I went back and saw some of my sermons. I was preaching stuff. I just wasn't, I just, it didn't connect. Yeah. It just was heady, you know? So I'm reading about Anthony of Athanasius and Benedict's rule and all that, but it wasn't, so in me there was this longing for something outside, but, and I was, lots of reading and study, and I'm, and I'm touching on it, it's not but nothing's there. in there. Was it sharp enough in your mind, like, would you have said it by then, how you say it now, like, evangelical discipleship is yeah, not working? No, 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 no. No, it wasn't that clear and I'm thinking something's wrong with me. I'm yeah. the problem. I'm doing something wrong. I've yet to figure out apart? the right formula. Yeah, I'm falling apart, you know, and, but I go to, I'm cursing it. Now I start cursing in 94. That was a new thing, like cursing as a Christian. I remember, I have such a vivid memory of this famous pastor I'm with, like, and I'm, I start cursing in front of him, and, and he just like flipped out on me, like, whoa, like, oh my gosh, you know? And, but I'm just, I'm so, I'm broken. I'm, yeah, you're raw. I, I'm just like, I'm like crying out for help, and, and he just says, whoa, man, you're in trouble. And How old are you now? You're 30? 35, okay. 36, 37. And I'm, he goes, whoa, man, you're in trouble. Like, this guy's like supposed to be like this epitome of wisdom. And I'm like, oh, you're really discerning. Like, I'm a jerk. <laughs> like, this guy, you have nothing for me. Yeah. Like, I was like, I, and it, what shocked me was there was not help in my tradition at that yeah. point. Like, I was like, oh, God, like, now I'm really in trouble. It wasn't like, I go here. No, there was nowhere I to go. I do that. So, I going to, I, so I'm, yeah. going, I'm going to a Christian counselor. And the first counselor I go to is a guy who was a pastor who quit the faith completely. Yeah. And he's basically trying to get me to leave the faith. And I'm like, this is not helpful. So I don't want to leave the faith. I have no desire to leave the faith. But I realize he has another agenda. So that was, here's a guy helping me to learn to feel, but who actually, as he's trying to help me feel, wants me also to quit pastoring. Yeah. And I said, God, isn't there someone else, you know? Yeah. And so, make a long story short, we, he did. I, I, I'm on this kind of two-year journey. 
I'm working on myself, trying to put pieces together. I start learning about laments and mm -hmm. family of origin. I'm reading, I'm reading books. I'm reading Friedman. I'm reading stuff. And I'm so like, books were a big part of this. They were you. absolutely. Wow. And uh, but in terms of Christians. Like, I'm not, like, there's nobody I'm talking to. I don't know who to talk to. And I read, like, there was a book called Healing of Damaged Emotions at the time by Siemens. It was like a, so there was stuff out there, and I read some 12-step yeah. stuff, you know, and I went to a couple 12-step meetings. I related to all the, you know, all the alcoholism. I'm like, I'm, I'm an addict, absolutely, count me. Yeah. Who knows of what? I'm active everything, you know, I got it. <laughs> I wasn't doing any, any theology of it. <laughs> I, I, I'm just so broken at this point. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, God, help me. And I, and I, I'm before trying, or after Gary no, quit your church? No, no, she doesn't quit yet. 94, okay. 96, so I'm on before. this inward journey. I'm like, but I'm not really like taking the church forward. I'm like, I'm pastoring, I'm being faithful, but I'm like internally wrestling with so But would you say stuff. this is like the beginning of kind of the inner journey? 94. It was two years before, then Jerry, 96. Jerry says, it was January 2nd, she says to me, I, I quit. I'm not going to church anymore. And uh, I'm going to another church, and she wasn't leaving me, but she says, you basically, in so many words, you don't have the courage to confront the people here that need to be confronted uh, because you're afraid they'll leave the church, and you're still recovering from the 200 people that left two years ago, so I'm not going to sit in the first row as if everything's fine. I'm leaving. I quit. That was the bomb. Wow. And so... Uh, that's what got us to go away for a week to, you know, yep. these two folks and two PhD therapists. And that's when it all came together to me that kind of the two year previous that I was an emotional infant leading a church. Yeah. Uh, and that my discipleship was so inadequate. So in your language, you were spiritually, quote, mature, but emotionally. I was an infant. I was you were a wreck. So, there was so much stuff untouched by Jesus inside of me. that, And it was wreaking havoc in your church and leadership. In my person, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my walk with Jesus, everything. Church, lead, I mean, the chaos of the church was not the church, it was me. It was inside of me, simply now, reflected outside. So you're saying, as the leaders go, so goes the church, which is that original to you? I mean, you're the only person I've ever read yeah, I'm that sure. from. Yeah, I don't know if it's original. Uh, so I'm guessing it comes out of it that out of, experience. Oh, I saw the church reflected my family of origin and my unresolved stuff. It was, wow. and it was, a, it was embarrassing. I was so embarrassed, I'm like, we do conflict the way my family did it. We do relationships like my family did it. We do marriages the way my family did it. Of course, I mean, this is a, and we're growing. People are coming to Christ <laughs> and people are getting healed and great stuff is happening. We're this multiracial church, fragile, but we're multiracial. And it looks so great on the outside, especially on Sundays. If you show up on a Sunday, you'd be like, oh my gosh, what anointing here. Yeah, you know, it's charismatic, there's passion. And especially there's... white folk coming from the you know, outside, they'd be like, oh my gosh, all these ethnicities, this is amazing in the inner city of New York. And, but I knew it's hell after this service is over. With yeah. me, I, I know that it's all it looks good. And, and that, then I also realized the whole judgments that people are making externally are just totally external and mean nothing. Yeah. So when Jerry quits, that's when I realize, I call it my second conversion, and I realize that, that emotional health and spiritual maturity can't be separated. But I don't have a theology for it. I just know it experientially. Yeah. And I also know about lead out of your marriage. I don't know. I, we just knew it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that we were married and that if it didn't work in our marriage, that we can't go on. Like in other words, I said to her at that point in January, I said, Jerry, if at any point you feel like I'm putting this church first and you're second, um, you know, Jesus and, you know, and our marriage, and yeah. if, you, if you feel like it's not first, I will resign. And I meant it. Uh, I'll resign. We'll go do something else. And it's not the church's issue. It's my issue. Because yeah. I don't have the ability to set proper boundaries. And uh, so leading out of our marriage became like paramount for us from day one. But again, understand, we don't have a theology. We just knew God had brought us into this experience. So then at that point, I, I start going back to my professors. 
and um, Ed Gordon Conwell or Princeton? Conwell, Princeton. Both. And then I went and got a D-Min, Doctor of Ministry in Marriage and Family out of Eastern University. And so I'm now doing theological work about how did I get here? How did this happen theologically? Because yeah. like yourself, I'm a pastor, theologically grounded. I'm not into, you know, emotion. The idea of emotion sounded so twerpy, psychologizing the gospel. There was so much suspicion yes. of that. It was like, you know, uh, Pete went off the deep end. Now yeah, he's feeling absolutely. and what happened to him. And I mean, even my, I'm younger than you by a couple decades, and I grew up in a church culture where therapy, for example, was right up there with like Satanism and secular music. I mean, it was like, <laughs> you know, I mean, therapy, and in particular for a pastor, therapy was a sign of failure. It was yes. what you got after the affair yeah. or something like that. There was zero, and I understand like a suspicion of Freudian therapy or yeah, like your course. first, like therapy is toxic and dangerous yeah. when it's done either badly or not from the perspective of Jesus. But it's fascinating. There's just, so, so, there's actually like a hostility toward absolutely. inner work, therapy, soul care, emotions. So the beautiful thing is we were in this cocoon called New Life Fellowship Church in Queens where like people are very open. Yeah. And so that's interesting because we've I, I'm shocked at how much we get away with back home. Like one of my driving passions is that psychology spirituality and biblical theology, you know, prior to the Enlightenment were not mm -hmm. separate disciplines. Mm -hmm. And the priest, you know, was the, the curate, the cure of mm -hmm. souls, the care of souls. He w was the expert in the inner life of the soul. Yes. And in the Enlightenment, you know, those became separate sub-disciplines yep. and psychology was farmed out to a secular, you know, evolution, Darwinian, evolutionary, Freudian perspective. And we gave the soul over to people that don't have a view of spirituality yes. and think you're an animal, yeah. you know? So it's like, yeah. don't get, whoever you give the soul to, don't give yes. the soul to that. And I'm really grateful for some of the, you know, more scientific work done in that, in the soft sciences. But all that to say, I wonder, like, we're up in Portland in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we're like so far from mainstream Christian yeah, culture, yeah. so yeah. far from evangelicalism, you know, tiny fraction of our city is following yeah. Jesus. I don't have a reliable number, but, you know, we're way more dogs yes. than followers of Jesus in our city, you know, <laughs> but and although in our, in our defense, there are a lot of dogs in Portland, <laughs> but I actually sometimes think that being so far off the map has been such a gift Absolutely. because I don't have to deal with all the anger and suspicion and hostility, you know what I mean, from the Christian tradition. Yeah, yeah. I'm able to pursue, I think, a more broad, holistic view that is still orthodox at a theological yeah. level, but is open to new ideas without getting all sorts of pushback. I, like, so I wonder if you had a somewhat similar experience Well, the only thing being you have, here. a lot of folks come out of legalistic storefront churches. Yeah. So, so I remember. Pentecostal we, kind of. Yeah. yeah. So, so I remember when Jerry and I, one of our commitments, we came back from our, we took a few months to get ourselves together and came back to New Life in 1996 from our little sabbatical, our first sabbatical, and we made a commitment that we weren't going we to lie anymore. Like, we're going to be honest. But that, that was a gigantic leap. Yeah. We weren't going to lie to each other because we lied to each other a lot. We weren't honest about what we're feeling and thinking. And you don't mean lie like, you know, not tell the truth about how many glasses of wine you had or whatever. You mean lie about just life like, how and leadership. How are you? How are you, Pete? Soul. I'm good. How, how are you actually doing? Yeah, am I upset with you? No, I'm fine. No, you're, yeah. you know, when like, in, inside you're seething. Yeah, or whatever. yeah, so, yeah. So, or, or if I'm falling apart, I'm going to say to people, I'm, I'm not doing well. I'm yeah. You know, so that was, and, and like, so I began to lead out of my brokenness. That was gigantic to, to do that. And that was like, wow. I wasn't going to lie by saying from preaching on whatever the topic might be, marriage, I'm going to, well, I remember telling the whole church about our marriage falling apart. And we began to run these one-day seminars for marriages in our church because we had discovered, at least talking to each other, just 
what we call incarnational listening today, we discovered a very simple, like speaking clearly and honestly and respectfully to each other and listening, entering each other's world. And a basic little skill, and we would go away for the day and tell our story, tell some, you know, our story of our marriage and teach people one skill like three times, right? the same skill. And I'll forget the first time we did it and we told the story of our marriage falling apart, whatever, and a, and a woman ran out of the church, just ran out. And, and, and uh, I said to her, well, what happened? She goes, I, I've never seen a naked pastor before. I, I, just, <laughs> I, just, I was so afraid. Yeah. And I think what happened was like, we, the emperor has no clothes, like yeah, we, yeah. we don't have any. And it just shook the, the mirage church. It shook the church. Down. It shook, and, and, but I did go after the folks who I would consider who were self-righteous, judgmental, pompous, you know, like the religious, I don't know what you want to call them, but folks yeah. who were not open to being vulnerable and broken mm -hmm. and slowly began to confront that. And that, that was, because I, I was okay if you, I, we were okay if everybody left the church. We, yeah. came, we came back. Because everything's on the table. You're like, I, if no I have to go, I go. No more pretending, no more lying. And we were on a journey of this authentic and, and loving well was, a, was, a high, was super, if you weren't a loving person, we made the connection of loving God and loving others are inseparable and you did the relationships course. Yeah. We began to work immediately on how do we disciple people in loving, because people are not, most Christians are not very good at loving. Because yeah. we, do, we don't disciple people in loving. So that became like the degree to which you love God, love other people is a degree which you love God. Like that, is, that connection two things. was huge. And so I began to, Ask some people to get off leadership. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, you know, the state of your marriage became very important. Um, and uh, at the same time, now I'm, I'm going back to my professors about how I got here, and this is where the word emotional health came in, which was, oh, yeah. it came out of a professor that uh, I had a, this, this Augustinian scholar, professor at Princeton, and uh, had a whole course on him. And I remember him referring to Protestants as Neoplatonists. Uh, going back to Augustine, and, yeah. and uh, I went back and said, help me understand like, what you meant by that. And him, together with another professor at Eastern, uh, talked about what it means to be made in the image of God, different aspects of us, that image bearing, and that there's a relational aspect. We're relational beings, and we're spiritual beings. We have the ability to commune with God. We're intellectual beings. We have a mind. We think like God thinks. We're social beings, and we're also emotional beings. And God feels we feel. And so if you didn't do formation, he said you've got to do formation of the whole person. Yeah, not just and the mind. And physical or, yeah. yeah, We were heavy on the mind, obviously, evangelicalism. Yeah. And uh, so I said in 96, I'm gonna, my life work is gonna be, what does it mean in that sec? And because there's not really parts, they're really aspects, because in the Hebrew sense, we're whole people. Yeah, but you can't for, separate for it out. For many reasons over church history, thousands of years, and actually it goes back to Augustine, um, and then the Reformation, how we just avoided formation of that emotional aspect. And so what I began to do in 96 was saying, how do we get at that aspect? We're going to keep doing what we're doing, you know, everything else we're doing in terms of scripture and evangelism and serving the poor and all that, yeah. and worship. But we're going to go after this. And so that's what we began to develop all that stuff. But it was a theological journey, even leading out of here. Ma where's marriage and sexuality fit into spirituality? And uh, I went for a doctorate in marriage and family. And, and see, this is what took me out of our tradition, because it really took me out, because I'm saying, well, the Protestant tradition doesn't have a lot to say about this. And, but some Catholics over here are talking about this. And then the whole thing broke open in uh, 2003 when I took a 
contemplative sabbatical and spent four months visiting monasteries, Jerry and I. And is this what you call your third conversion? My third conversion, and just yeah. living. So the first conversion is kind of toward emotional hell. No, first is coming to Christ. Yeah, first second, is, sorry, second is emotional hell. Emotional hell, yep. Mm -hmm. And that's where family of origin, genogram, all that stuff, emotional relationship skills is all The kind of psychological there. side of some yeah. of your work. I never, you know, it's funny, I, I, I but yeah, yeah. Yes, not, not that's not your language, but yes. But but yeah, I, I, drawing a lot from the social science disciplines. But but I was trying to work out how do you love? How do you yes. disciple people in, in loving? And, and that for me was that's like when everything clicked for me with the emotional health stuff. Is it hit me? Because it's a lot of work, ironically. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of work. And um, and it gets harder before it gets better. Yes. You know, and it's so worth it. But. What clicked for me was, oh, emotional health isn't just about me feeling better. It's not just me, about me becoming less stressed out or a happier person or more chillaxed. Mm. Like, the whole thing is about love. You can't be emotionally unhealthy and loving to the degree that you want. No. And to the degree that you are emotionally healthy, with all that you mean by that, is the degree to which you have the capacity to love in the way of you. That, for me, clicked Every, that's like the strongest apologetic, Isn't I think, for emotional health. Is if um, everybody agrees that Jesus said the whole thing's about love. Yeah. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, whole person, right? And love neighbor as self. And you cannot do that if you aren't emotionally. I think for me, it clicked person. in 2003. It, what made Jesus so distinct from the religious leaders of his day was he made that connection with people that they just yes. couldn't see it. And whether they wanted, what's the great commandment? They said, what is the greatest commandment? They wanted one, he refused to give them one, he gave them two, love God and love people. Interesting. You know, he refused to give them just one. So and then they also, said, what's the greatest commandment, singular, and he, he gave two. He said, they're both inseparable, loving wow. God and loving people. And then, if you remember the story of Matthew's house, and he's, you're criticizing him for eating with tax collectors and sinners, yeah. and he says, you, you don't get it, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He quotes yeah. Hosea, and he goes, you're not getting it. And then, even in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, um, you know, leave your gift. If your brother's angry at you, leave your gift. Yeah. You all to go get reconciled. Rabbis at that time taught, no, if, if your brother's angry at you, finish your worship, then go get reconciled. Jesus said, no, no, no. Get reconciled, wow. then come back and worship. So he, he kept flipping things. Yes, but they hyper emphasis. They couldn't um, see it. And so I, really, I, I saw it. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so obvious once you see it. You're like, yeah. oh my gosh. I said, why is it that I've been a Christian out all these decades, seminary, best leadership conferences? This was never the thrust of becoming a loving person. How do you become a loving which person? Which takes you back to your family of origin, takes you back to, you know, genogram stuff and brokenness. I mean, there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount to learn, just like we want to learn about prayer and worship and fellowship and all the other stuff we teach in our churches. But if you look at the weight of what we're teaching, it's almost all loving God, me yeah. and God, me and God. I know, but you're still a jerk. Okay, you're still defensive. You're still And critical. that plays to the hyper-individualism of American That's culture. I thought about that. And so, I read an interesting, um, I got a hold of this obscure kind of academic article, it's, it's a couple decades old now, from Willard on the history of discipleship in evangelicalism. Mm. And he goes all the way back to Luther, so starts evangelicalism. Okay. Apparently, you know, Luther was the first one who used that language in German, of course, from which evangelicalism comes, and it's a much broader in its, uh, originally. Okay. But then the and traces it through, and then specifically since World War II, Billy Graham, and just makes the, you know, makes some, some very fascinating connect the dots about why there's never been robust discipleship mm -hmm. in evangelicalism, 
you know, and Willard was a quasi-evangelical, so he's saying that he from the inside, you know, yeah. But he made the obvious statement that since, and a lot of it for Willard is connected to soteriology, or your doctrine mm -hmm. of salvation, and what you think salvation is. Yes. If you think salvation is a primarily legal, guilt, mm -hmm. innocence, go to heaven when you die thing, that's a radically different view of salvation, I think, than what we find mm -hmm. in the pages of the New Testament. But if that's your frame, then you have a very different emphasis. And Willard just pointed out that, especially since World War II, which is more how a lot of us, you know, think of evangelicalism, kind of World War II up till you know its demise, the last yes. five years or whatever, is uh, the emphasis has all been on conversion. Hmm. Like, how do you get people in? So the whole goal, and he goes to the navigators as the primary discipleship mm. thing that came in behind, you know, Billy Graham. Yeah, and he's, yeah. he's not a critic. He, like, he, I think he's a fan of the leaders of the navigators. But at it one point be. he says, they're Christ-like in spite of their structure, not because <laughs> of their structure. But he just said, even that, the point of discipleship was to get people ready for winning souls. So the whole emphasis was on... You know, and look at your story. You're like you're out preaching on the streets. Yeah. The whole emphasis was you get people out preaching yeah. the gospel. And again, he's not saying that's bad, but that created a world where the emphasis was not on how do I become even like Christ, much less how do I become a loving person yes. toward God and toward others. And everybody would have said, yes, of course, love matters. Of course, we want to yeah, become yeah. a loving person. But that's not the thrust of like this whole thing is about how we become loving people in discipleship yes. to Jesus. And so the, 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 I think the key, and you, you've done this you know, in your work at the church, it's combining both the contemplative and the riches. For me, it's not just spiritual disciplines. And I think yeah. prior to my 2003 experience of actually entering into the experience of different monasteries, uh, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and, and uh, Protestant, and actually experiencing the silence and the solitude and the Sabbath. And actually, I was just telling my daughter, we were on vacation together, our 24-year-old, about we actually considered joining a monastery after our sabbatical. We actually wondered if God was calling us out of New York. Yeah. We were looking for a monastic order that took families. Yeah. And we, were that, we had been that impacted by our overactivity and what had come alive in us in just the silence and stillness. But it's the combination of the emotional health piece, which as you know, it's its own universe, it's so massive, yep. with the riches of monastic spirituality. And which is what makes it different than just Christian psychology or whatever, like yes. it's leading you into this deep place with God. The social sciences are going to come and go. Yeah. Scripture doesn't. Revelation from God does not. And so, But the social sciences can offer us a gift along the way, always understanding their tentativeness. That new stuff's going to emerge with attachment theory or whatever. It's all helpful and different yep. lenses to see things, but we don't. It's not the same level as you're talking about a revelation from God of, of who He is and Jesus and His love for the world. And but we can draw some. We can draw some from that as yeah. it illumines, you know, Scripture. The soul. I mean, psychology is from psyche, the Greek word for soul. So yeah. there's stuff we can steal from it. Yeah. But there's a much more ancient tradition. So it's the two things together. To me, that's that's the punch, and that's when we. And that's your third conversion. So second yeah. conversion is emotional, emotional health. health that you can't separate spiritual maturity from emotional maturity. Yeah. Third conversion is a number of years later which is your foray into the contemplative, monastic, slow down, yeah. quiet, stillness, spirituality. And prayer. that opened up a whole other world. And that really took us into the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church world. I'm talking about now the, again, the Orthodox churches. Think of that from whether it's the Greek Orthodox Church, the yeah. Syrian Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church, the Russian, I mean, you know, the 
the those who were from north of Iraq. And is that because you know Protestants obviously shut down all yeah. the monasteries, and so we've never had a monastic yep. movement really inside Protestantism? Is that why? Yes. yes. Yeah. Because and and then you go back to the roots of why we shut it down mm -hmm. at that time makes sense. Yeah, there were a lot of a abuses. Reaction. Yeah, reaction, yeah. bad theology, abuses of yeah. it. Yeah. And so but we threw the baby out. Martin Luther and company, God bless them, threw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. So understand, I was always studying church history and reading, but now I went to a whole other level of, of the of the splits, and looking at the Protestant church, which has lots of splits, um, and realizing, okay, what what are some lessons here? Yeah. And uh, it was a whole nother world that opened up while remaining evangelical. And I'm yeah. again, I'm grateful for my tradition. Uh, and it just opened up just a whole nother world. And again, it's still opening up. I still feel like Jerry and I are yeah. growing, we're learning, we're, we're on such a growth curve uh, now in our lives. And uh, you know, I, as you get older, you really, you know, it's, you're getting to know yourself much more deeply. Uh, that's why aging is such a gift, uh, and you're seeing things more clearly, deeply in your in yourself. So when I read that book, Educated, and she talked about herself, and and she was at Oxford at the time, and she felt like an imposter because she knew where she came from. Yeah. And she, and no matter what the professor said to it, she goes, I, I still feel rotten on the inside. Yeah. And uh, I, just, I was just reading that. I was reading it uh, pleasurably on the beach, and I mean, God just came to me. Wow. And I said, that's a great expression for my own. It, it just illumined, yes, that's how I have felt about myself. Almost like I don't belong here. The first time I took a taxi as an adult, going to a speaking engagement, I'll never forget, I felt like I'm in the back of the taxi, like I'm being driven by somebody. Like, I don't deserve to be driven by somebody. Yeah. Where does something like that come from? But as you mm -hmm. get older, again, it just ended up, it opens up the grace of God, the love of God. And I mean, and again, our, our, our understanding of who God is and how he sees the world yeah. just continues to expand and deepen. And I just can't imagine if God gives us you know, the 20 years, 30 years of life, like how much God has for us. And so I think it just opened up the journey. That thing. Because I have so many questions I want to ask. We're not going to have enough time. But before we kind of start to work through implications, what's the, do you, one of the things I love is, you know, by the time you're learning and your journey comes to like a, a clear, you know, synthesis that's a book or a podcast yeah. or a conversation, we're the beneficiary of, you know, decades yeah. often or years of you reading and thinking and half the time I'm sure you just felt confused and trying to work yeah, it out, absolutely. you know. Yeah, as you know. So it sounds far more clear and linear, you know, yes. on the on hindsight. Um, but do you have any, is there a fourth conversion that you're in or see on the horizon or like what do you think is next for you? from your, your beautiful evangelical, yeah, yeah. theological, charismatic roots to emotional health to the contemplative or slow down spirituality. What's next on the horizon? Well, I, well, I, I did have a fourth conversion, which I call my leadership conversion hmm. in 2007, which was applying all this material to leading a large church. Got it. And I, was, I had not been doing that. Mike, come on, you're greedy with the conversion. So now I'm asking you about a fifth yeah, conversion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just know we're on a growth curve journey, and I feel like things are getting clearer and more fuzzy at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where it's all going. I, I, I'm seeing, I, I don't know. I, it, it seems to be probable something will probably happen again. Marriage is something obviously very central to us. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't know. And you're I writing about that now, correct? Not yet. Almost. We will almost. be soon. But uh, want to write about that because it, it's such a obviously people don't get discipled in marriages, and mm -hmm. yet it's such a core discipleship issue if you are married. It's yeah. The core after Jesus. Um, so no, I don't know. I, I don't know. But uh, there's probably pieces of it. What it is out there already. Uh, the global church and the historic church are surely in there. Yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking I'm probably on a, on a larger level now that I'm extricated from the day-to-day -day running of a church. And the more I'm having time to think um, and research uh, and pray and be, I just find God coming in so many, cool coming ways. In so many wonderful ways. Yeah. Man, I love it. Gosh, so many things I want to ask. Talk to me about at what point, let's begin our foray into this conversation, slow down spirituality yep. in your language, whatever you want to call it, yep. a contemplative life, or in my language, kind of unhurrying, whatever. When did that come into the picture, and what exactly do you mean by that, drill down okay. at a kind of from concept to practice? All right, so the idea of slowing down, I've had in my vocabulary since way before I got into emotionally healthy discipleship. I would say the journey began when I started to integrate the emotional component into our discipleship. Because then I allowed myself to feel, I paid attention, I began to journal, and stay with it. Yeah. Until, you know, I remember I journaled about my anger towards my, you know, mom, for example, for over two years. And got out all my rage. My mom was unable to have a conversation with me, but I just yeah. needed to get it out. Therapy was helpful, but I needed to journal. Um, so just learning to feel. Then, of course, once you start feeling and doing relationships, that slows all of life down. Because it's time-consuming. It's incredibly time-consuming. Emotional stuff, relates, none of this is quick. So I went to a, I went to a five and a half day week in '96, just with the emotional integration of stuff, doing stuff like genogram, learning. Meaning re because you work were working six days a week. I was working six that. days a week, six and a half days a week. Um, I was just bringing the workaholism of my yeah. dad into spirituality. Yeah. And then, of course, you're getting reinforced with an evangelical culture, which leaders, you know, kill themselves. Yeah, let's give you a raise for doing that. Absolutely. Great. So that really slowed us down. That was a, in 96. So understand, we, were, we had slowed down. And because once you start putting, if you're married, you start putting your marriage first after Jesus, yeah. that's going to slow you down. So and we so were very pragmatic, you're saying. It wasn't some like, it was just, I, and as of 96, we have to, numbers to was no longer stuff. of concern for me. Quality wow. was concerned. Um, so you're driven more by internal metrics than external. I wanted to, you know, I, I believe one of the great gifts of the church is we are, uh, we really are a gift to the world. And every person, God has a purpose for you. God's got a dream for your life. It's a seed inside of you that's meant yeah. to be nurtured and watered. And, and I think that the community is meant to bring it to fruition so that you can offer that gift to the world. So I'm very passionate about God loves the world and he has created uh, people to be a gift to that world out of your story, out of your history. And uh, so that is our, you know, that, that to me is an overriding gift. It's not just you having a good life and it's not just about you. It's about God, God loves you and, and he loves the world. Uh, but you are meant to be a gift to the world. This is not, this is not about your happiness. Yeah, it's, not, it's so, about love. It is. And so, and love takes time. It does. So we slow down, but then when we encountered silence and stillness and actually living life with monastics, that was, you know, entering. Because on your sabbatical, you went to a monastery. We would stay four or five days at a time. 
Where was this at? Well, we started with the Trappists uh, in Massachusetts. We went to Taizang in France, some of you may know that. Went to Northumbria in England. Uh, an ecumenical community on Cape Cod for families, some Orthodox community in upstate New York. So we did a variety. We had a whole wow. layout. And, uh, but most importantly, we entered their rhythms. So, and we, so even when we were not at the monasteries, we had, still had children. Um, we sometimes brought them. We'd laugh about it. They laugh about it to this day. But we, um, <laughs> so we, and we monastic fixed our prayers in an eight-year-old's idea of good time. Well, they didn't have yeah. to participate, but they did have to, you know, Taze was 10 minutes of silence three times a day at Taze with four or 5,000 other young people, and they were there. Wow. But uh, we, we were living offices, you know, fixed our prayer and uh, large chunks of silence, and we just dove into the Desert Fathers, and, and that's when I realized that evangelicalism has always emphasized spiritual disciplines. And you'll see that with Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, and others, the emphasis on integrate disciplines. And I, the revelation for me of the 2003 sabbatical was, no, that is not enough. Hmm. It is uh, the gift of monasticism and the Desert Fathers. That goes back to John the Baptist, Elijah, Moses in the desert. That was picked up in monasticism in the early church of, of uh, fleeing to the desert and drastically changing your whole lifestyle, that I'm leaving the world for the sake of the world, and so my own, the idols of my own heart can get cleansed, and I can see the idols in the church and in the world clearly. But it's a whole, I'm, I'm leaving the world and I'm leaving the American church, and I think that to me is what happened in 2003, and it was this, uh, that's why Jerry and I, I think we made a... And what do you mean leaving the American church? You're still at a church in America. Yeah, so yeah, but in terms of that. the culture of, um, you know, I go to church. Most people go to church because it can make my life better. Yeah. You know, I'll be a better parent. I'll be a better single person. I'll be happier. I'll have better relationships. I'll feel good in worship. And yet, for the most part, my goals and objectives are still yeah, the idols American, are unchallenged. American culture, and you know, it's almost like an unspoken contract. And it's like, no, we began to invite people to create a desert space. Um, to leave the world and what they know as American church and go to Jesus. It's a radical calling to Jesus. And how is that different than integrating the spiritual disciplines into your life? It's taking the riches from the monastic tradition. And that to me is what we were doing here. And, and that's what we started to do in our own life, almost seeing ourselves as monks. Like our first calling is Psalm 27.4. You know, just one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, um, that I may dwell in the house you know, of the Lord. Yeah, forever. dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. And I think for, so for me at that point, my first calling was not to be a pastor, not to be a husband or a father. It was to be a contemplative, uh, like David. Defined as? Being with Jesus. My, my life is to be with Jesus. Now, and therefore the structure of my life is to be with Jesus. So my identity took on a whole new um, detach, healthy detachment, I think, from being a pastor, yeah. from being whatever, leader. If it doesn't work, okay. That's doesn't not matter. my main thing. I go back to indifference, I think of, you mm, mentioned earlier, Ignatius, Ignatius that. It was yeah. like, I was really okay. Like I, I was, so I structured my rule of life. I developed a rule of life. And I, I again, out of the history of monasticism, people were living alone in the desert as hermits. In the second, third, and fourth centuries, they began to form communities because people started doing crazy things. And at that point, in 2003, I dove into 
people like Cassian and Benedict yeah. and the church father. And they formed communities because ironically so many people kept coming out after those yes. that had left the world yeah. to, to learn from them. Teach me how to pray, help me with my soul. Communities started growing up around these poor hermits who were just trying to get away from it all. Something happened in, in that three to four month, I guess it was a four month sabbatical in 2003 because I don't even know what, what it was. I, we were a week of silence with the Trappists uh, living there. So you spent a whole week in silence. You yeah, had a monastery. Like 3 a.m., getting up 3 a.m. Jerry and I were not talking, talking through the meal. We're not talking. And, and God just, you know, came. I, I, I don't know what to say. It was like an, they called it infuse, infusion, infused righteousness. I don't know. But it was like I really felt this call to a monastic life. Mm -hmm. To a point where Jerry and I really did look into monasteries. Yeah. Can we finish our sabbatical? But you have a wife and you have and four, four daughters and, I was a and you live in an urban context and, and you're leading a church. And I said, and God, are you asking me to leave? You're like, at heart, I'm a monk, you know? Exactly right. And I really did Gosh, wonder. And we wondered, sure God, are you asking us to leave New York? And I remember, you know, going to the, back to the elders and saying to them at our church when we came back, because people didn't know what happened. Like, what happened to you? And I was like, I don't even know what to tell you, but I, I can't deny it happened. And so I said, I will not ruin the church. You know, I love our church. I said, but I'm in this discernment right here. Is, am I supposed to bring this here? I don't want to ruin the church. Now, in our case, when people thought of monastics. And what did they notice? Like, they just noticed you were more detached, more like, or what was it? Uh, um, well, I, talk about slowing down. Now, I really slow down. Yeah. And yeah, you're supposed to be type A, community organizer, my activity, pastor, make it happen. If you activity, doing and being, my now these circles really did get aligned, and I was yeah. doing a lot less. But I'm still the lead pastor of the church, and we've got a lot of people here. So, um, and a big community development corporation going on. So the question, am I going to still lead this thing, and, yeah. and uh, do I want to lead this thing? Um, and then it, discernment process was very clear with time. God said, stay. You know, work it out here and Queens and New mm -hmm. Life Fellowship Church. And I remember the head elder saying to me, Pete, you know, just please go slow and you know, don't wreck the church. And I said, I'll do the best I can. I, I, I'll go slow, you know. And I, but I, I did offer my resignation. I said, you know, I'm open to resigning because I don't want to hurt the church. And so they had a discussion. Because it was that level of an overhaul for you. And I knew there was no going back. And Jesus. I knew that I was going to have to bring this to our church. And I knew because we have a, we have a pretty large African-American contingent here. And when people think about monasticism, they think of white European monasticism. Yes. Which so, is not where it started. I know. At all. But it was, there's, there's a, there's a yes. mindset. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Because monasticism is so tied to a view of white oppression. <laughs> and yet that's where I Africa, am. And I'm not like I'm yeah. in a white upper middle class church in you know, Seattle or something where maybe people have studied you know, the Renaissance and medieval yeah. history and all, you know, African yeah. history. I said, like, I'm in a tough environment here. So the beautiful thing is it drove me, that's what began to drive me to North African Christianity hmm. and the Desert Fathers where I realized they were African. And again, doing some more integration for our context here of this is not a European thing. Yeah. It's actually an African thing that spread. Um, and it's surely you know, not an American thing either. And I think the radical emphasis on Jesus. Would you say that you could even argue monasticism started as a, a way of running away from the Roman Empire and kind of the, the early imperial power? 
Oh, that's not an argument. The, that's the truth. Into the Ethiopian desert and, you know. Well, the Desert Fathers came out of when the empire was becoming Christian. Yeah. There were so many Christians in the church now that there was no longer martyrdom. Yeah. Fourth and century Christendom is the, it's brand new. There was so much of the world in the church that the only way out was to save the church was to flee to yeah. the desert. And as you know, a great revival broke out and yeah. it was massive. And all the leaders for the first 1500 years, mostly, most of them, they were, they were monastic. The theologians yeah. were monastic. They'd go out to the desert and then they would come back. They were prayers, they, they, they prayed their theology. It was very different than we have today of an academic yeah. discipline of studying theology. So it was that integration of praying your theology, missional, I was just like, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, and it just opened up a world to me. And then I realized, okay, there were some real limits into my evangelical Protestant mm -hmm. uh, development that really have hurt me and our church. And so at that point, I was like, no, we're gonna learn. And uh, so I've been on that journey ever since, and yeah. it's been fantastic. And uh, studying history, you know, historiography, how we, how we understand history is so important because it's some of that book by an uh, educated by what's her, Westover, I think her name mm -hmm. is. She talked about how her father taught them a view of history. Yeah. And that's all you knew. But it was wrong history. Yeah. And I realized so many people in the church have a wrong oh, view of history. Or just an incredibly narrow view of the church. And, and, and I think it's part of our role as pastors and leaders to help them see that no, there's a larger story here. Yeah. Um, there's a larger church. It's like when, when ISIS was sweeping the Mideast, I don't know how many Christians were actually concerned about, like, there are Christians being killed here right now, you yeah. know, in northern Iraq. There's a lot of Christians in Iraq, you know, and in Syria. That, there were. There were, and, yes. and that, that, that yeah. we care about that, yeah. uh, even though they're not evangelicals, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that they're real Christians, the Assyrian, the Chaldean Christians, and even though they do things differently than us. And the Coptic Christians that got killed on a beach in Libya, yeah. you know, like, like they may have funny hats and the patriarch and all that and not be skinny jeans and smoke machines, but like how many folks in our churches are going to, yeah. Let their head get cut off for Christ. Yeah. And yet we're making judgments on them because they're not skinny jeans. And you know, I mean, yeah. we make judgments based on these narrow views of the church. And again, how does God see the world? How does yeah. God see what, what's happening in the world? So much wider than our lens. And so I think we're hurting our, the formation of our people by not exposing them to the a larger narrative. And, and it's so true. church history for you is tied to spiritual formation. Yeah, and absolutely. Is that just because it's tied to a more holistic, broad, soul-level experience of discipleship to Jesus? I would say it's church history and the global church. Yeah. It's both. Um, you need both. It's, and I would say because it's our genogram. So yeah. It's not like, like you come from a family of origin, back generations. Well, we come from a, we're part of a family that's been going on 2,000 years. Yep. That family's very diverse. And to think that you're just ignoring the the riches in the history, but everything we believe. Because then it doesn't question the idols. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? Of your culture, your ethnic experience of yes. church, your yes. majority white, Protestant, yes. that whatever the thing is, you know? One of the gifts, again, another one of the gifts of being here at in Queens with 75 plus nations in the church is you see the, when you're together, you're not monocultural, you see the, every culture's got their idols that they're blind to. Yeah. But when you're all together, they become very obvious. And so it really helped me see my own idols more clearly, and I think it's, it really helped the formation here um, because we had the prism of the global church yeah. in a location that uh, caused 
uh, caused, at least caused me to see, and I think us to see more clearly, there is something called a new family of Jesus. There is a theology, and it's that new family of Jesus transcends culture, race, yeah. ethnicity, class. I just I find your guys' experience so fascinating because you are the most multi-ethnic church I've ever seen. You know, we hear a lot about that language, yeah, yeah, but like you're living it. You know, you walk in the room and it's like, oh, there's a white person. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and it's beautiful. Um, but yet you are not like the stereotype of the kind of progressive woke whatever thing is it's very different and very queens and very authentic and very honest and I some of your language at times is a little bit jarring like I've heard you say before we don't do Italian or African yeah, or yeah. Korean or whatever sure. we do new family of Jesus yes, yeah. and you know and you don't mean we actually do Italian American yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean you and actually I, and, mean and we're, I wouldn't new say we're first about Jesus. and we're not first about multiracial church we're first about Jesus we're about yeah. Jesus and uh, we're passionate about the person of Jesus. That, to me, is what... But for you, that's wrapped up in every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yes, yes. And it's going to look differently in different contexts. Because right? that is your Wy neighborhood. Your neighborhood yes. is crazy multi-ethnic. I think whether you're living in Wyoming or Nebraska, and maybe in a monocultural environment, maybe an all-black African-American environment, right? Or all-Chinese environment. But you still need that lens of I'm part of a larger whole. And you're saying church. that was a gift, even though, because it brought all this conflict to the surface, yes. exposed the idols of every Italian-American yeah. culture, majority white culture, Korean culture, yeah. whatever, and gave you this global prism of like what each stream and even each ethnic stream of the church brings to the table. I don't think I, I did, and I didn't realize it as clearly as it until we started actually bringing emotionally discipleship to the larger church. Yeah. And realizing, oh, they're having a hard time with this. Like, this is like, and I realized, oh, this was not formed in a suburban context. This yeah. was formed in a very different context. And so this is going to be hard for some folks to, wow. to take. But it is, a th like at root, as you, as you are so committed to, it's a theological paradigm. Yes. It's a theological lens through which it informs everything, everything in life. And it's like a blob that just keeps spreading. And yeah. you know, many folks will say, I, you don't realize initially when you get into this that this is going to impact Every part of one. Every life. You part think of your life. A program. I did emotional discipleship. I did this piece of my life. I can no, move on. It's, no, it's a whole life thing, whole soul thing. So what are? I, I still want to keep going ahead, back please. to slow down spirituality. But what are? Dying to ask you this question. What do you think are? I don't want to put you on the spot, but so it's fine if you don't have like. I don't know it. I don't know. Things, it, but yeah. what do you think are the theological obstacles for most people, and even if not evangelicalism, just the Western Protestant tradition? What are the theological obstacles or hang-ups that keep people from emotional health, contemplative life, formation? Wow. That is a big question. Um, like it seems, we mentioned earlier, you know, Willard's answer to that was the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Like, what is salvation? Okay. You know, so if salvation is like I go from guilty to innocent and I go to heaven when I die, if that's the view, I've got such a truncated, cynical way of yeah, saying yeah. it. But if that's the view of people that obviously is an obstacle to deep inner healing, soul work, transformation okay. to love, you know? I'll frame it differently. That's a good one. I'll frame I wouldn't frame it like that. I would frame okay. it like this. When to become to be a Christian is to be a disciple, right. a learner. I'm in a school. And so I am when I come to Christ or I'm on this journey I receive Christ, I become a Christian, but I'm I'm a follower, I'm a student. So I'm I'm learning how do I do life in this new family of Jesus, and I'm leaving the destructive parts of my family of origin. So you're not culture. just trying to bring Jesus into your socioeconomic, ethnic, this is how I want to live. No, no. God bless the American dream. 
you're, you're becoming a student in a whole new way you're of You're a student of Jesus. You're following a, a son or a daughter in a whole new family. And you're coming to church as a student, a learner. The whole word disciple is a school word. It's a slow word. It's not a revival word. It's, so to be a Christian is to be a disciple. And, and you're saved by grace, absolutely, but you're a follower. And so that, that's a whole, I don't think, I mean, Willard might give it a more academic name. I would just say it's a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. Exactly. So I say that's the, that's the starting point. Um, but I, that was not the case so much here in our context. So I think people, there was a level of commitment that we had here in a place like New York because we were drawing on the riches of the global church. Mm-hmm. People were passionate. So there, there was still a narrowness to it. Yeah. With me, so so I think. But number one is so they were passionate about following Jesus. Absolutely. But their vision of what that meant, meant was was, was narrow, narrow evangelical. Yeah. So, but so I think it wasn't the like consumer sit back, like just put a little vanilla in my latte spirituality. No, no. It was no. We're passionate. We're following Jesus. But the rubric of what that meant was it was just not wide enough. Yes. So. That is number one, I'd say, in the larger whole. That people understand, I'm coming to church, I'm a follower of Jesus. So that, yeah. what it means to be a Christian. And, and, that, and so that's number one. But I think number two then is, um, the, the second piece I would say is that knowing um, go, a, a second core part was that you've got to go back to go forward. Yeah. That you've got to look at where you come from, uh, your family of origin, and the negative legacies in particular that you're bringing to the table, and where they need to be shifted, what they need to be what needs to change here, whether how you do relationships, how you do anger, how you do conflict, how you do sexuality, how you do money, how you do, what is success for you? And everything falls at the cross, everything, you know, er, you, you die so you can live. And so that's the hard work of discipleship and it's intense, and, and, uh, but you've gotta be willing to do that kind of work so, so you can go forward. Because out of that, God did, you gotta know yourself, you know, that yeah. you may know God, it's not, it's, it's a, it's who are you? How has God uniquely made you? What's his purpose for your life? So there's a lot of self-reflection in that. Um, and you've got to slow down. How do I, how do I be with Jesus? Because the first call is to be with Jesus. How do I be with this person called Jesus that I can't see? How do I abide in him? How do I pray? What is this thing called prayer? So I, I've got to get now apprenticed into this world of whole new being reality. with Jesus. So it's a whole life. And I, I think what's happened in much of American culture, but not just American culture, the globe, we've exported it globally. Yeah. People just show up to church for, for a, a, a great meeting to get all you know, pumped, which or isn't bad. I'm not, or, and yeah. I'm not against the pump and a great worship and all that. It's just I've got to do the hard work of discipleship. You're not a revivalist, and there's a place for that, but your heart you're, no. is deep. Evangelicalism, that's the negative of, of American evangelicalism. So everyone's praying for revival, and I always say, what is that? When you're praying for revival, what does that mean to you? How will you know? What does that look like? And I think for many people, a revival looks like people are on fire for Jesus, falling on the floor, you know, zealous. But you can be a zealous, you know, like what was Jonathan Edwards' revival or Charles Finney, and they go back to American history, those revivals. Uh, it, the question is, after the revival, the question is, after the Spirit of God falls, yeah. what's the fruit of that? that? That's what matters. And I think... Uh, I, I don't think many people who are praying for revival are thinking through the life change we're looking for, which is behind closed doors. Yeah. And I was with and someone. Are you saying you can be zealous and not be transformed to love? Totally. I was. I mean, I know lots of people like that. I mean, it's like you can be reading the Bible day and night and sharing the gospel with everybody that moves. And passionate about it. And have interceding for revival at early morning prayer meetings. And be obnoxious, defensive, 
and critical. Not aware of how a father wound or something is giving shape to how you treat other people. and Don't do feelings. Mm -hmm. Relationally cold. And so anger comes out in unapproved and, and, and so you're not even doing that kind of discipleship. And so it's like the Pharisees, you're, Jesus said to them, you go over the seas and you make them twice as son of hell as you are. Yeah. And I think that's, what are we, what are we after? What are we going after? And I think um, I got swept up in my early years at New Life Fellowship. I think the traditional revival, size, conversions, mm -hmm. which I'm after, you know, I want to see yeah. people come to Christ. Because you're not saying it's a bad thing. You're just saying, what's next? It's just not the whole thing. If it's you just, don't have a rubric, yeah. It's not the whole package. And that's why what you're doing, formation and drawing the riches, the best out there in terms of how can we help our people stay anchored yes. in the world we're living in today, which is incredibly challenging, distracting. And that's one of the reasons I'm intrigued by monasticism. And I think, you know, in this conversation, we're making monasticism sound more positive than it was. Yes. I've read enough, like half of it was like people in deep, deep need of therapy and Absolutely. mean introverts who just wanted to be alone, you know. Lots of pathology. There's, there there's lots of pathology, but there's some beautiful stuff in it. But I'm intrigued by like the Benedictine kind of model of revival. Obviously, they would not have used that language. Yeah. But as the Roman Empire has hit its zenith, is now into decline, the barbarian come in, sack Rome, and the Roman Empire is falling apart. Augustine's writing at a similar time period. And revival for them was less about like rah, rah, rah. Yeah. It was more about how do we create these monastic islands of stability, mm -hmm. rule of life, practice, yeah. prayer, abiding, peace, as the world is falling into chaos. And I wonder if the next revival different than you know a Wesleyan revival or Finney or the Second Great Awakening if it'll be more Benedictine and it'll mm. be more about like creating these communities that are kind of quasi-monastic communities even in urban contexts these non-anxious presences in the middle of a world that's just freaking out you know perhaps in our context for sure you know I think you might be on something there it may look differently in places like Africa where yes you've got 600 plus million Christians south of the Sahara Guatemala's they say half evangelical right now. I mean, so again, we're not the whole church, right? Uh, but at yes. least in, in Western secular society of Europe and the United States and Which Canada. feels like it's in decline. But that just shows like, as I think about as we're in decline, I'm thinking through that lens of the Western church in America and England and you know what I mean, Germany. Yeah. Like that's my We're lens. not the whole church. I think of that as the church. That's not the church. <laughs> that's like not even the majority of the church. It's a minority, you know? Yes, yes. And so I say to people, I don't care where you go to church. The question is, are you, are you nurturing and growing your relationship with Jesus? Yeah. So if, you, if you're a Roman Catholic, you're a you know, you know, Coptic Christian, it's fine. The point is you're nurturing a relationship with Jesus. You're part of a community. You're growing. Even if you wear skinny jeans, it's still okay. Absolutely. You wear skinny, whatever. But the point is you're, yeah, we're not the, we are not the whole. That's a very big moment yeah. to say, yeah, Shift. we're not the whole package here. Okay, so coming back around to slow down spirituality in, in your language or the connection between hurry, busyness, mm -hmm. speed, and deep soul formation. What I'm hearing you say, am I hearing you right here, that... The first kind of foray into that was just pragmatic. You wanted to start doing work where you prioritize your marriage, your family, your loving. inner growth, yeah. loving, dealing with your past and your family of origin and your issues with your mom and all of that. And that just takes time. You just can't yeah. do it quick. There's no fast, like, 10 minutes a day kind of thing, boom. So some of that was just pragmatic. And then the second shift was once you began to have this vision of a contemplative, you know, quasi-monastic, in a city yeah. with a spouse and a family vision where really life was 
as much about being as it was about doing in your language, yeah. was built around abiding. That was yeah. the center and the foundation for everything. And there was another step into slow down spirituality. Yes. Is that what I'm hearing? Yep, absolutely. And it's interesting that you noted that one of the first things that came out of that shift into the contemplative and the monastic for you was this different emotional relationship to the church that you were leading. I know all the people hearing this are pastors by any stretch, but I'd love to hear about that. I've been thinking a lot about the Ignatian idea, Ignatius of Loyola, founder of Jesuits, as you know, his idea of indifference, mm -hmm. which is probably not a great English translation yeah. of the Spanish. He used the Spanish word, 16th century. Indifference kind of makes it sound like, I don't really care what happens, yeah, you yeah. know, and in particular, when we think about justice and injustice, yeah. it's not a great translation. But it's, you know, other people have translated it as a detachment, you know, and his famous line of, in his spiritual exercises, I can't quote it verbatim, maybe you can, but don't set your heart on yeah. sickness or health or yeah. a long life or a short one or poverty or riches, but just anything that leads, I think what's the line, everything has the potential of calling forth God's deeper life in me or something like that. And just make your one heart desire and choice that God would bring about his deepening yes. life in me. Again, that's not a verbatim quote. Yeah, Maybe yeah. you have it and, he, and, he, and actually, he's, he's, that's not his original. I'm just going back to all through church. Again, when you look at church yes. history, you find out, oh my God. And he's like, steeped in that. Church father. Yep. Absolutely. So this idea of indifference, you know, or detachment, yeah. or whatever you want to call it, where there's a, your identity, your self-worth, your happiness yeah. is not nearly as tied to the circumstances of your life, to how... New Life Fellowship, the church that you're leading goes, or how the outcome of your career is, or whatever. I've been, you know, I'm nearing 40 now, and I'm dealing with that kind of inner shift, and I, I think I have a paradigm now, um, not from the tradition I grew up in, which I'm still very grateful for, but from the more historic tradition of the spiritual journey as being in part about a shift in motivation mm. and being less and less motivated by kind of egoistic ambition yeah. and more and more motivated by love. And not love as defined by a New York or a Portland, which is basically desire <laughs> slash lust, um, but love as defined by Jesus, agape, like to will the good of another ahead mm. of your own out of a decision of the heart to delight, you know? And that's been a fascinating shift. And when I say shift, it's not like I am now motivated by love and all I do. I just am now aware of that spiritual journey and feel like I'm moving. But it's been really interesting. I was chatting to a good friend of mine who just turned 40 as well. We're both pastors of churches in progressive secular cities. And we've both been on this journey of kind of inner shift in motivation. And I don't want to get into my, like, turn you into my personal therapist now. <laughs> but it's been really interesting. It's been actually a lot harder for us to motivate ourselves to work. We actually feel more, fr I feel more free than I ever have from like the need for our church to go a certain way sure. or a book to sell a certain thing or people to think a certain thing about me. I feel more free, more indifferent, more detached, more joyful, more at peace, more calm in my own body than I ever have. But it's interesting, I don't, I have less and less, it's still there, but I have less and less of that egoistic kind of ambition drive. And I realize so much of my life and work was really rooted in that drive, drive yeah. like ego, ambition, yes. external metrics for success. I want people to think well yes. of me or think I'm smart or cool or successful. I want yes. the church to grow or go well. And I would never would have said that. And half of it was subconscious, you know, yeah. not all of it though. But now as I really have this paradigm for, no, I want my life just to be abiding in Jesus. Yes. And what I offer is much less, but I offer it in love and yes. out of my honest personhood. 
it's been harder for me actually to motivate myself. I'm hearing a little bit in that. You come back and before you're like, I'm planning to church, I'll give up everything. Now you're like, I'll quit if you want me to. Yes. Do you want me to stay? But That's I a profound inner shift, you know? So what is, I guess the question in there is, is that, was that your experience? And what yeah. was that journey like? And yeah. motiv- I, I, what does the, motivation look like? This idea of, let's use the word, surrender. Mm-hmm. Okay. Surrender to And that is language I grew up with, you know? I surrender my will to his will. One of the reasons silence and stillness is so critical for me is I'm surrendering in silence and stillness my will to his will, which is a slow, slow process. But when I, I think of, you know, as the years progress, the deeper I'm convinced, the more you are with Jesus, the more you're able to let go and float wow. down a river. So if you, as you struggle with ego and my being the driven. The more you are with Jesus, the more you are able to easily, let go. More easily let go. And, but you're stewarding. Then you're, then you're doing things out of a stewardship, really out of love, to will the good of another, as yeah. Aquinas would say. But you're doing it for a whole different reason. Because, you, you know, listen, you're doing this podcast, and you know, you've got a set of gifts, and God's given you a certain platform. And hopefully, you know, you're stewarding this to be a blessing and a gift to the church and the world. Now... You say, but it's a little confused where it's me and God and all that. But I yeah. would say that where it's confusing, I, I wouldn't. I would relax. I wouldn't get uptight about it because yeah. you're still you're young, and but it's an invitation. You want to just con- it's an invitation to press in. I think more deeply of being with Jesus. And over time, God will sort that out for you. I think He will just sort it out. It'll it'll, it'll God will. You can trust God. He's going to bring enough pain and in your life <laughs> uh, and over time that he'll drive that out of you um, in time I, I, I you know in, in your thir- 30s 30s you know in your 20s and 30s and 40s or so, you know it's definitely you're, you're trying to make a mark your certain age and yeah um, and sometimes folks go through a tremendous amount of pain they can see things more quickly than others in some ways the amount of suffering you've had enables you to see things more clearly yeah so I don't know your full story of suffering. I know you've got some. Uh, but I would relax about, oh, I feel like I want, to, I want to get rid of all that selfish ambition. I want to have a pure yeah. heart and all that. Of course, I want to, we, want to, we want to see God. A pure heart will see God. Um, but I would see it more as a prompting of the Holy Spirit to say, you know, be with me. But don't get extreme, right? Teenagers get extreme. I'm, leave, I'm going to separate from my parents. I'm moving to the other side of the country. I know yeah. you're still, you're still emotionally attached. Yeah. yeah. So, so as you get into this, the power, everything's. This stuff is very powerful, and you don't want it to send you off on a, on an extreme. You want to stay anchored here. So no, you're still, you're, you're. God's not called you. Or God's not called me to be a, a Carthusian monk. All right, which are the, they're like the SWAT SWAT teams of. Of, of monastics, or they're living in silence, and they only see each other once a week. All right, yeah. And so, but uh, no, you're called to an active life. You're called to life indignation. You're in the world that living some of these monastic riches and rhythms. You're, and which Thomas Aquinas would say is the most difficult calling. Yeah. He says, right, you can be an active person, purely active, just or a do, contemplative. Do, do, do. Those are easier than being. An active, a contemplative, active person. That's the great. So it's easier just to be a busy pastor, career, lawyer, mom, dad, whatever, or a monk out in the desert yes, by yourself, the walls. than to attempt to live a life around abiding in the middle of a city with a job, career, church, kids, all that. I was That's reading, the hardest. Absolutely. I was reading Meister Eckhart, 12th century German. Yeah. And he's talking to these nuns, women who are living uh, in monasteries, 
uh, in Germany at that time, and he's telling them that basically you got to get active. To follow Jesus, you are too contemplative. Like yeah. he's basically saying, Jesus did not isolated. retreat behind walls. And you know, hide. It's, so, it's so interesting. So that's the other extreme, okay? And so I think to walk this out in the midst of Western culture right now, what a yes. challenge. And that's why. Because we, most of us, need to move toward the oh, monastic. I'd say almost 99% yes. of us yeah, need to more. move to a more slow down contemplative life. And, it, and the problem is, we're not living together, we're all yeah. living separately. And uh, so how do, we, how do we create communities where that's actually supported and anchored enough? Um, that's why I've always, I, I, I've always dreamed of like an evangelical monasticism. Yes. I think we need something to, to and I, I think the early- And you're church, not alone. We're thinking about that. Pete Gregg from 24-7 Prayer is actually doing some of this. Like, I think that's the next cut I do. for the church in the West is some kind of domestic monastic order in urban and metropolitan contexts. With local churches. And I yep. think if you want, one of the best models to me in the world is the Egyptian church. And if you study them, you'll see they've got their local churches, and then you've got this desert monasticism going on, and they draw from each other. Yep, they um, feed each other. And the monastic people come out from the city to the monastics, and, and the monastics first, come back in for theology, leadership. It's tremendous. Um, you know, I, I, there's something there. I, I, yes. I feel there's something there. I, I feel like I've had a vision for it since 2003, since my experience with the Trappists. And uh, I think we need it. I think yeah. we need something that radical, that grounding um, for the future. Is a place to start maybe around like rule of life? And talk to us about that. Um, for people that are new to that language, what is a rule of life? And is, is that like a, a way for a community not living under the same roof, but in the same neighborhood or part of the city to, to begin to move toward this at a very practical level? Yeah, I think, again, there's applications of a rule of life. So yeah. let's, let's go back to the original history of it. And uh, in the second and third centuries, fourth century, as they were going out to the desert, there was a need for them to form communities. And so this first fellow's name was Pacomius. I don't know if you know the name Pacomius. And he developed the first rule of life, and then it's hmm. followed by Basel. And, and where is this? I don't know. Egypt, Egyptian desert. Yes, okay, and I did. Pacomius developed the first this. rule of life yep. um, of how do we structure you know, coming together for you know, the Lord's Supper, for worship. And this is because originally the monastics went out to be alone. They were all hermits. But then they ended up kind of forming little communities and they had to figure out how to do it together. The problem right? was people were, if you, if you read some of the stories of when they were out going out alone, some of them went off the deep end. Yeah. It takes tremendous maturity to be a hermit. In fact, if you go to monasteries, you cannot be, they will not let you go alone to be a hermit unless you're very, very mature. Because without some community around it, you can easily become imbalanced, yeah. and so people would do things like jump into wells, God's gonna capture me, you know, then end up dying, and you know, yeah. the Lord told me to jump into the well, you know, 100 feet deep. Mental illness at some point. Some so, so yeah. Pacomius was the first one to develop what's called a rule of life, a, and a rule not like we think of do's and don'ts, a rule yeah. was Not a rules for life, rule, singular. Yeah, and, and it was a structure, it was meant to give you a, a sense of protection, a covering. Um, that you would agree upon. And in a sense, uh, every monastic order, Franciscans, Dominicans, um, Ignatian, they have a rules, they have a rule yeah. of life, Augustinians. And uh, actually a local church in some ways, a membership, if you have something like that, is almost like a rule. We, we join a local church because they have a way of following Jesus. I said, yeah. I like that way, and I want to be a part of that. And so I saw the power, when I, when I was experiencing different rules of life in different communities, um, I was like, wow, okay, this, this is like a local church in a sense. And, but I said, I, I saw the value of 
being clear and conscious about it. We are unclear. We don't talk about mm -hmm. it. It's very fuzzy. Come to church, tithe, go to a small group, serve somewhere, go on a mission trip once every couple of years. You yeah, know? And, and that's, that's kind of the rule of life. Read yeah. your Bible in the morning. Yeah, read the Bible in the morning. Most don't even do that. Or read a Christian book every now and then if it's recommended yeah. from the pulpit. But uh, I said, no, there's a need for, especially in the, in the culture we're living, much more serious, much more intentional. And uh, so, you know, we've experimented with a variety of things over the years. I moved our membership to a, a vague rule, a, kind of a, a rule of life. We're working on this back home right yeah. now. Yeah, and then, but then individuals need a rule of life. And, yeah. And, um, I saw a ministry called Praxis in New York. They developed a rule of life yeah. for redemptive Great entrepreneurs. One for entrepreneurs. So I, I did a language now is catching on around, and people are, are experimenting with different ways to, mm -hmm. to take some of the riches of that monastic uh, insight and say, how can we apply it to today to helping us in our following of Jesus? And what are some very practical, you know, where would you kind of begin? You have a couple of daughters that are 20 yeah. and 30 somethings living in Brooklyn in a yeah. city, like similar to a Portland kind of context, whether you live in that context or not. What are some very practical kind of categories for a rule of life so I, I, I that you would recommend? Well, I took mine out of, out of, out of Benedict's Rule. Mm -hmm. Many, many books have been written out of Benedict's Rule, uh, which, is, which is the primary rule of life yep. used in Western monasticism. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's generally four categories in that rule. Prayer, uh, work. relationships, work, and What's the other one? Prayer, relationships, work, and rest. Community. 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 Okay. Is it, wait, is it community? Oh my gosh, my mind just went blank. Um, boy, oh boy. Do you remember? Anyway, so it's four categories. <laughs> and so um, I took those four categories and developed a, a, a more robust one for leaders. That's been my, my most concern is for pastors and leaders, because yeah. if we don't get it straight on that level, the church yeah. is, is lost. So um, we began to develop some kind of modules for that. And so I began in 2003, developed a rule of life for myself, um, and which I basically watched every, every year, a couple times a year, Jerry and I would you know, redo it yeah. and what adjustments we would make. Probably the biggest help was the boxes were uh, limited. And therefore, if I was going to add, I'm going to write a book in my work box, oh my gosh, that was going to impact the other three boxes. And what are your four oh, boxes? Oh, I know. I'm sorry. It's prayer. Rest, That's what relationships, I yeah. and work. I'm sorry, those are the four. Prayer, rest, relationships, work. Those are your four kind of yeah. boxes. And it comes out of the best categories. And, and you could put different ones in different categories depending on how you're built. Mm -hmm. That's not the important thing. The important thing is balance and rhythm. The center of that rule is receiving and giving the love of God. That's, the, that's a little circle in the middle. Mm -hmm. Everything flows out of that. How can I create a life where my life is receiving the love of God and giving, giving the, love the love of God? Both to God and to others. Yeah, of course. I'm receiving it and I'm giving it out now to the world. And how do I create a schedule, a set of practices, a structure to make receiving and giving the love of God the access point of my whole life. And it's got to be uniquely developed because of your temperament, your personality, yep. your calling in life. Uh, so for example, stage of life, stage. little kids, but what are some things that, give us some categories at least, like I would love to hear practically that you think are true for the, the young mom or dad to the yeah. single 25 year old, to the career lawyer, to the unemployed, like what, what are some basic categories that you think some iteration of yeah, yeah. need to find their way into anybody's life in a kind of Western context? Yeah. Okay, so, so let's take the... Uh, prayer category. Somewhere in there is, um, I'm in scripture. 
Mm -hmm. How often? Well, I would say I can't, I can't legislate it. Yeah. But uh, um, I, would, I would say preferably daily. Mm -hmm. Some way that connects with you, yeah. that you're able to digest this. I, you know, the, the early church fathers saw scripture as sacramental. They actually, this, this is unlike any other book. This is a they came this, to experience God yeah, on the it page. It makes visible the invisible. This is this is God's coming through this, and there's, there's, a, there's a sacredness to it. So it's not the quantity. Let me read through the Bible in a year, which I'm fine if you do that. I haven't done it in many many years because I, I get stopped by it too quickly. Yeah, and. Uh, but it's where you're meeting God in Scripture. So, I don't, so I'm not meeting God in Scripture. I, I read and I get bored. Okay, well, that means you got, that's part of your discipleship. Now, how can I, what are some ways I can encounter God in Scripture? And mm -hmm. that's, part of your, that's part of your rule of life. Yeah. I'm going to learn that this year. So, Scripture. Silence. 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 And silence and stillness, I'd make a category. Yeah. I'm not sure. Just sitting in the quiet. Learning how to be God. still before God. And not necessarily reading and learning and no, podcasting no, no. and listening no, to no, Christian no, no, music. No, 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 I'm talking about being still before the Lord. Still before Which God. is one of the most challenging spiritual disciplines. So that's, I got to learn that. Because when we're being still before the Lord, we're, we're receiving His love. We're surrendering our will to His will. Um, we're learning, and I'm, to, learning to let go. Yeah, I'm abiding. and I'm, I'm being with Him. I'm just in communion without talking. So you don't mean intercessory prayer, you're sitting there with a list of 20 people you're praying for and you're reading through the Bible in the air and those are all great things, but you just mean literally I'm talking about sitting there and letting God love you. Yes, and loving Him back without words, just you're, you're being still before the Lord. It is one of those invitational commands in Scripture. It's the move from an immature relationship to God to a more mature one. If, if yeah. you're in a relationship with someone that's all one way, all they do is talk to you, I mean, it's a very immature relationship. Yeah. So if all you do is read the Bible, get information, or, or, or get... And if all you ever do is talk, talk it's not a very intimate very relationship. Very immature relationship. And I would say most people have a very immature relationship with God. Wow. And so this move to the great silence and stillness is a gigantic one, very difficult one. But once you make it, you will never go back. Oh, yeah. But it's a difficult one to, <laughs> that's why for us, yeah. when we're bringing EH disciples to a course, the daily office, silence is the most challenging piece. And so I've been trying to work on how to move people into experiences of silence. everything in our world spiritually forms us against and silence. Absolutely. Because silence can't be monotonized. Yes. Google, Facebook, Apple. There are folks with PhDs working. They can't you. make money off us sitting in silence and letting God love us. They actually lose a lot of money. <laughs> so they're paying to get you distracted. The more you. <laughs> content and at peace that we become, the less money there is to be made. That's not to root it all in capitalism, but a lot of it's most of it's our own stuff. But, but man, I just feel everything spiritually forms us and mitigates against our capacity to just sit in the quiet with God. But the more I'm at it, the more I'm like. That's the tip of the spear. Yes. Like that and life and community are like the two like most potent moments for me Absolutely. of life transformation. And so what happens if you build some, again, it may be that you're a mom with two small kids at home and, or dad with two small kids at home and you're going to find silence in the bathroom. And it's not going to be two hours. No, it's it may be, be a, yeah. two minutes, but, you, but you're, you're doing it. Yeah. And, you're, and it, over time will spill over to where you're reading a book and like I was reading a book last night, I'm reading a book about this uh, couple and the woman, young woman gets cancer and, um, but I mean, I just know God spoke to me. I was like, just touch me about the fragileness of life and in yeah. a moment, a nanosecond, your whole life can change. And I just, I just had to be still.
and respond because, you know, God, God comes disguised as life. Yeah. And I took, well, he just came in that moment to me and I just put the book down and so it took a few moments. So it's a silence just kind of integrating into all of life, which is the wow. goal. So I would say that's a scripture, silence and stillness is a, that is pivotal. Yeah. And then of course, community. Mm-hmm. Got a few close friends that you can be honest with uh, yeah. and share with. And then I would say in terms of rest, uh, Sabbath, I would consider a pillar. Yeah. A 24-hour period. That I feel the same, but it's so weird because most people don't view it that way. They view it as like an optional no, no, thing no. I, if you I, really I want to enjoy an afternoon. And no, that's a bad, that's a, that's, a, that's a weak theology. No, Sabbath is a, we're talking about something that's been around 3,500 years. I mean, yeah. Orthodox Jews have understood the richness and power of it. We evangelicals are just dancing around it a bit. And I mean, you got it's like anything else, you got to dive into it to get the depth of it. Yeah. And uh, I would say Sabbath is a, a 24-hour period uh, where you stop your paid and unpaid work. You actually rest, and the key word is delight. You experience the delight of gifts of God in the world and people, relation, whatever gives you joy and get replenished. And, and you're, you're contemplating, you're seeing the invisible God in the visible world around you. But that, that spiritual practice, I would consider, that's, that's a life and death one. Yeah. That's not, I mean, it's like, can you grow as a Christian without, can you, are you saved by prayer? No. Are you saved by Bible study? No. Are you saved by Sabbath? No. Are you saved by Jesus alone. But if you're not praying or reading scripture, probably not quite. He's often saving you through these. Yeah, but that Sabbath thing. The hard one with Sabbath is it's such a high, I mean, I adore it, but it's such a high, working with people, such a high bar of entry. Like silence is really hard, but you can do two minutes of it. Even a minute. You know? Yeah, yeah. And um, you can be like, that was really hard. Now grab my phone and go about my day and head out to the subway or whatever. Sabbath is by definition, I mean, start where you're at. But it is by definition a 24-hour time period. It's actually part of the discipline of what it does to your it's body. It's not hard you know? if if you've got someone just kind of coaching you through it, mentoring you through it. Because we have built in, we have so much built in already. So I'll yeah. say this: let's take a, an average person, probably your church. Um, let's say they're single, all right, and, and uh, you know, late 20s, uh, or a young couple with uh, small children. But you say, okay, so Saturday, and maybe the, the, one of them has a job that's high in, high intensity. They got to prepare for it Sunday nights. I'll say, okay, listen, uh, you're going to church anywhere on Sunday, so it's already, that's built in. Okay, you got, so say, do Saturday night 6 o'clock till Sunday night 6 o'clock. Gives you an hour or two to work on preparing your Monday. But you just say, okay, that's going to be a Sabbath to the Lord our God. And, you know, give a brief teaching about, say, how can we build in delight? You've got two small kids that have diapers to be changed. Who's crying? Yeah, and I get that question all the time. It's a problem. And and so, yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're, we're not living in the ideal romantic world. We're living in, you know, we're not reality. monks. And again, it's the act of contemplative. We're trying to figure out how to do it here. Yes. Real life. And again, Orthodox Jews have been working on this for centuries. So it's not new questions. Um, but um, you're going to go to the soccer game, maybe, and you're, got, you're not going to be screaming on the sidelines. Okay? You're going to be relaxed. You know, your kid's going to play in one league, not 30, mm-hmm. you know, or not three, traveling to other states. Or like the kid I talked to the other day, what sports do you play? And you just said, all of them. Uh, problem, <laughs> I yeah. of, how does that work for your family? But it takes all tri- of them. It's going to take trial and error over a period of time. Yeah. But I think that's, again, you need models, and you need, I think people need to talk about it. They need, to, yeah. they need permission. Process it, it, work it out in community. And, and, and get, some, get some nice biblical guidelines. Um, again, theology becomes very important again. Yeah. Uh, not get legalistic and not get this is irrelevant, but capture the gold of it, which is what Jesus was after in the, in the Gospels. Uh, which is delight. This is a gift given by God for you. And again, uh, if I can give people a taste of it, uh, they won't go. The, 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 the taste, the good taste will pull them 
it's like you're a bad person by not Sabbathing, but you're missing out on a gift. Oh, you were made for it. Once you start, you can't stop. Exactly. You know what I mean? There's that J-curve thing. It gets harder before it's easier. But once you get the Sabbath into you and you get into the Sabbath, I mean, it's like trying to yep. convince people to eat ice cream. Right? And a lot of Who questions will it? emerge as you're in it, and you need someone to talk to about that. Yeah. Um, so I'm hearing scripture, some form of silent stillness, community and Sabbath are your kind of anchor. They're, they're pretty anchored from those rule words. of life. This is how I follow Jesus with tons of space for I got three little kids in a yeah. one bedroom apartment or I'm a single person or I'm an empty nester yes. or I'm an extrovert and introvert or I'm new to Jesus or I've been at it for 50 years. Tons of space, thing. freedom. It's not legalistic. It's not prescriptive. But these are some basic parameters. If I make time for scripture, hear truth, I make time for just sitting in the quiet before God, receiving his love. I make time to live in community and close relationships, and I Sabbath. I yep. give a day each week to just delight and be delighted in by God. And I'm, I'm always, there's enough space for me to monitor my heart. Yeah. And so, for example, if I'm having a time with Jesus in the morning, and I'm in scripture, and I'm having my 20 minutes of silence, and then I go out, and I'm a jerk to my wife, you know, I yeah. just snap at her. I realize, oh, I just missed the point of spiritual practices is, love. is to become a more loving person, yeah. become more, more human, not it's, less. It's not to hide. And so yeah. it's easy to Get fall away into from it all. religion. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's such an easy tendency, and, and that's why I'm always monitoring that. And, and I would say, I, I think you're getting into Ignatian spirituality, the whole discerning of uh, consolations and desolations. What is mm -hmm. God saying to me? How's he coming to me? How's he coming to you? My emotions I'm and listening. desires. I'm always, and, yeah. My whole life is one of listening and being before him and seeking to follow his, you know, his voice and his will, um, not my will. Yeah. And I think that's going to guide you as you fill out your rule of life. So obviously, my, developing my relationship with my children, I have two grandchildren now, is part of our rule of life. Yeah. And uh, you know, Jerry's extended family. Her mom's 94. She's still alive. Um, so there are things like vacations, I call them longer sabbaticals, um, but the whole idea of sabbatical rhythms, uh, at every seven, eight years I have to take a sabbatical still, I'll have, mm -hmm. have another one next year, Yeah. Um, because again, I think for those of us who are vocationally doing this, you need some longer chunks to just be, so God yeah. can replenish the soil. To not get paid for following Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder in closing, as we end this conversation, you know, you mentioned the role of Sabbath and silence and stillness and Ignatian, consolation, desolation, hearing God. You know, it's funny, God doesn't, it's in my experience, maybe I'm just missing it, He doesn't make Himself super easy to hear all of the time. I don't get like a bullet point text message or email from Him this morning, like, cool, here's yeah, your yeah. three things, go kill it. There's a lot of like wrestling and, you know, what in my heart is the Spirit of God and yeah. what is me? Yeah. And what's pain and what's suffering that's demonic or yes. what's from Jesus or how is Jesus in it, wherever it comes from. And yes. there's a lot of discernment there is. that goes on. And it takes a lot of time, Yes, takes a lot of quiet, and it takes a lot of relationships to process, like, how is God coming to me? I wonder if that is, at the end of the day, part of the slowdown thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like God doesn't want to just shout at us, I wonder, mm -hmm. sometimes over the noise of our life, like with directions, like a coach for a you know, soccer team or whatever. Go there, go there, yeah, come yeah, on, yeah. kid, go there. But there's that intimacy, that quiet, that soul. I mean, has that been your experience? Absolutely. Is there a, a connection to this slowdown thing, it's Sabbath thing, and just learning to hear God? That is part of following the crucified Jesus, I'm convinced, is 
not knowing where you're going. Wow. And if you look at the story of Jesus and that Syrophoenician woman, uh, if you know the passage in yeah. Matthew, well, it's in, it's in uh, Mark as well, but when she comes to Jesus and says, and says you know, heal my daughter. And he goes, no, you know, I've, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And so he's got to understand at that point of, you know, the Father's will is just, you know, I'm doing Israel. Then he'll feed over to the Gentiles. And he basically, you know, he says, no, you know, uh, he mentioned the whole the dogs, you know, and the Gentiles being referred to as dogs. Yeah, and she, fascinating and she says, and she says, But even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table, she says. And Jesus realizes, I mean, he, he's discerning. The Father's will comes to him. And so he's, I mean, he's the God-man, much like the God of Garden of Gethsemane, it's unfolding for him Wow. of, oh, heal this woman's daughter. Because when he does, a revival is going to break up, break out among the Gentiles now yes. in this area of uh, Tyre and Sidon. And, and so, but he, he goes through the slowness of a discernment process. It's much like the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Yeah. But he's discerning. Working and, through his emotions and feelings. But and, he's in this slow process and, and discerning the Father's will because he's the God-man. He's, he's showing us what it means to life in the Spirit. And it's not all, you know, why is he praying all morning in Capernaum? Doesn't he, doesn't he just know what to do? Yeah, and, you know? and, and waiting on God. And he says, no, we've got to leave Capernaum. We're leaving the revival yeah. and going somewhere else to another city. But where'd that come from? And I think we're in the same, we're, it's the same for us. It's wow. slow. And, and, and I, I'm okay. I don't know about you. I'm okay with it. I, I think it's, I don't know. I, 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 it's normal. You're right. This whole idea of why didn't you just tell me right now? But if you look at, I, I journal. Do you journal? I journal big, I don't journal every day, but I journal when God speaks to me something really significant I don't want to yeah. forget. And I want to catch trends in my, yeah. you know, time with God. And so I'll look back a few times a year. What's been the last, you know, six, nine months, 12 months? How's God been coming? And, I, and that, then his will gets really clear. I'm like amazed. It's so obvious now. It was not obvious nine months ago. No, later. you just felt confused and tired and what is this and yeah. And like you, I'm in the middle of a number of things. Like, I yeah. don't know, but we'll see, right? Where, where God takes it. But you're just looking for the, the clarity of like, what is God up to and how do I say yes to that? And then these surprises happen. You're Surrender like, to that. what does this mean? Yeah. Now, how are you processing that before God? Absolutely. And then you find Man. out things I thought were true five years ago, I don't think are true anymore, you know? Yeah. I thought I knew so much about this, and I don't know much about this at all. Well, Pete, let me pay you the ultimate compliment. You inspire me to do less <laughs> <laughs> and slow down and waste time with Jesus, so mm -hmm. to speak. It's not that, but um, I'm really grateful. We just want to yeah. honor you and honor the way that you said yes to Jesus. and you could have gone a whole other number of trajectories. Mm -hmm. Who knows where you'd be? Who knows if you would still have a marriage or a family or a character? But you know, um, you're in your 60s. You've been at this for a very long time in leadership, something like as long as I've been alive. Mm -hmm. And you have a good reputation. You have a good name. I know people who know you who are behind the scenes with Pete Scazzaro, who know all the dirt there is to know. And they respect you, and they love you, and they come to you for advice and wisdom and mentorship. And that speaks volumes about your character. And you're the exact same person when there's a record button on or not on stage off. And we just honor you and thank you for how God has done this work in you. And you've said yes. And I would imagine millions. I don't know. I just can speak for our church back home and for my wife and I and our community and my friends who lead other similar churches in other cities. It's like the role that you have played. Oh. It's invaluable. And you gave us something that uh, was not passed down to us from the, the 
the church tradition that we came up in. And many other things were wonderful things. Scripture, Bible study, yeah. gospel, doctrine, beautiful things. But what you have passed down to us, um, we will carry for the rest of thank our you. life. And so thank you for your time. I'm honored to be honored. Thank, thank you for you being very, here. And enjoy you. the coffee. Thank you. <laughs> Blessings to you. And you, tell, and you just keep pressing on as you contextualize for your generation, you break, yeah. you're breaking new ground. Yeah. You're going to pass it on to the folks that follow you as well. And yeah. That's a beautiful thing, and I, I I look forward to seeing how God is coming in new ways to you and others as you seek to follow Christ in the midst of the challenges facing us. Yeah. So blessings. Thank that's you. I'm it. learning a lot from you. Thank oh, you. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, thanks, Pete. Thank you.